Hey everyone, uh, welcome to 185 Miles South. Uh, if you want to support the show, please like, rate, review, um, subscribe, do all that at uh, Apple Podcasts and, and Spotify and Stitcher and uh, all the spots. If you can please do that, that would help out a lot. Um, just hit that five-star button, man. Hook it up. Do a little two-sentence review or a two-word review or whatever. Uh, that would be much appreciated. If you want to go the extra mile and support, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and uh, donate a dollar a month or $3 a month or whatever. And that really helps me. Uh, the co- It helps me take care of the cost to keep the show going. Um, not only with like my all the monthly hosting and like i don't know you got these fucking monthly costs and then also i'm trying to travel around to still do everything in person um so that's much appreciated you can also go to paypal.me slash 185 miles south if you wanted if you wanted to do like a a one-time payment instead or one-time donation um this week we have spencer and david uh both currently and formerly of the shake cafe which is one of the greatest uh, places for hardcore and punk rock shows in the fucking world. Um, I mean, in my opinion, I've played a lot of places, and it's up there with, like, the Gilmans and and uh, the CBGBs and everywhere. Like, those... I, I'm fortunate enough that I was able to play both those, which are super famous, and, uh, and just basically, they each have their own vibe. You know you're walking in somewhere special when you walked in to play one of those spots. And the Shea's the same way. It has old history going back to the, uh, you know, the the mid-80s for punk rock and early 80s. And, like, it just has a vibe, and, and it's a special place. If you've never been there, you should uh, go out of your way to go there. Um, and that's it. Let's uh, bring on Spencer and David. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. All right, here today we have David Diekman and Spencer Gooch, both uh, of notoriety from being at, <laughs> being at the Shea Cafe, right? One of the greatest uh, punk rock clubs in America. I would say so. I would definitely say so. But I don't know about the notoriety part, but the greatest <laughs> punk venues, sure. Yes. Okay. So, well, a lot of bands have come through. Yeah. Um, many notables that we should get to. Um, I brought a list. Okay, awesome. That's good. And let's just to get it out in front, what are the years that you guys volunteered there? Uh, I vol- this is Spencer. Uh, I volunteered at the Che from 1998 uh, all the way up to 2008. Okay, and you were how old now? I'm 39. Okay, so from when I was 18 to when I was 20, we're the same age, so that makes it easy for yeah. me. 
And, and uh, I first got involved in 2000 when I was 18. Okay. I was there for a few years at that point. Then I came back in 2007, was there till 2010. And then I came back a few years ago and I've been there since. So, so you're currently there. I'm currently a core member. Yeah. Of awesome. Collective. And, uh, but yeah, so my time has been split up as I've moved away and come back. But oh. yeah, my first involvement was 19 years ago now. Yeah. And so what, what does being a core member mean? Uh, so essentially the collective um, is, uh, so everything's non-hierarchical and we have these meetings every Monday night and this is when we make decisions in the collective. Everyone who comes is part of the decision-making process, but we have specifically core members are the people who essentially have the keys to the building. Um, you know, so they're, they're people who have gone through a process we call a clearness in order to... Uh, join the core collective. Uh, essentially, it just means that you're, you're you know, you're trusted in uh, in having responsibility for the building. You can take responsibility for shows and events and opening the building. And uh, you've also developed what we call critical relationships with other members that are in the core collective, especially, but in the general collective as well. And how large is the core collective? Uh, the core collective right now is probably about. Uh, 14 people or so. Yeah, but it, so it varies. That's it, that's a pretty big group. Yeah, it's a pretty big big group. There's definitely been times when there's probably like two or three core members mm -hmm. and the and the place is struggling, but we've been in a pretty good place for the past couple of years. Okay. And it's a collective, so does it run similar to like Gilman? Like what would you compare it to to people that don't know? I would I would compare it to Gilman in in some respects, um, but I think that the Che has a longer history of of things outside of shows mm -hmm. so student activism on UCSD campus and then uh, activism that goes outside of the campus and so when when the Che at least in its current incarnation started it it really focused on certain aspects of collective process mm -hmm. um, I'm not familiar enough with the way Gilman does things to really speak on that but at the Che, uh, you know, there has to be consent and consensus that is built in the decision making. So that means that it's not a voting process where you have a winner and a loser. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a majority rule. It's that everybody has to consent to something happening. And you could certainly have people who would say, I don't have an opinion about this. So I'm standing yeah, you're sitting out. Yeah, I'm sitting out. Um, but generally... You're going to have everybody saying, yes, I can live with this, or I'm a supporter of this. And if you have one person who's saying, I can't live with this, then the proposal or whatever it is needs to be revisited and retinkered. Or, um, you know, private kind of consulting goes on where people can then, like, bring that person over. Yeah, like, they, bri they bribe them with, like, I'll take you to Pokies if you yeah. go to my side. <laughs> yeah, Pokies burritos. Yeah. yeah, that'll do it. So, So really, you could have... 13 of the core members before something and one person stands up against it and it's not going to happen. Yes. But it's even more extreme than that because the general collective members are part of the decision-making as well. Oh. So you could have someone who isn't a core member decide that they don't want something to happen and it wouldn't happen. Now the likelihood of that happening is super, super low. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it's not a super common thing that something gets blocked, but it does happen sometimes. But generally, that just means that the conversation has to keep going. Mm -hmm. And then that conversation keeps going and people are able to come up with some sort of 
you know, compromise that works for everyone. Um, I, certainly, there's certain things over the years that have been blocked that it's just over. It yeah. just doesn't happen. Um, whether it's a show like a certain band playing mm-hmm. or something along those lines. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say that's actually the thing that differentiates us from Gilman. Besides the fact that we have a vegan kitchen and all the activist stuff he was talking about, um, is our decision making is different. My understanding is that they do voting and they mm-hmm. do some sort of majority rule. I don't know what their percentage is, but so that's a, a pretty radically different thing when it comes to the decision making process for sure. Um, because I guess their meetings, they'll like. I've heard of problems in the past where they'll like someone who wants something to happen will stack that specific meeting with a bunch of people mm-hmm. and then they'll be able to <laughs> vote for something to happen. It's or democracy happen. in action, man. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little different with us, um, you know, but you the, know, something, something like that did happen uh, at the Che. Um, man, this would have been um, mid two thousands, early two thousands where there was a lot of people coming to general meetings and it was making the decision-making process just chaos, like just wild. Um, Is there a certain amount of meetings you have to go to in order for your voice to be heard? No. Because that's a little psycho, right? That someone can just show up at their first meeting and be like, ah. Well, that was an issue that we were grappling with at the time. And so what we decided on was that we would have a general meeting. And then afterwards, we would have a core member meeting Mm -hmm. um, so that the people who had a longer term stake in the the space would be able to tackle some bigger decisions. Um, And ultimately, that went away. uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's, it's not in line with what the Che is about. Um, but like it, it was a, it was a dilemma. Yeah. It was a necessity. If, if there's 50 people in a meeting that it, that's a nightmare, there were meetings that would go on for hours, like three hours. Uh, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't reasonable or efficient. And that was also like a contention within the collective because we had some people who were saying, uh, yeah, we need to keep it open. That's one of the principles of being here. And then you had, then there were other people who were saying, right, that's the principle of being here, but this is nuts. Like I can't be here for three hours arguing about this event or this language on this sign or whatever it might be. Right. Um, especially with people who that's their first meeting. And so rather than sitting back and saying, I'm going to see how this goes, people were just jumping in, which is great and difficult to manage at the same time. And incredibly, this is a, a rare thing in the history of the Che, which is remarkable uh, for uh, something that can be abused that easily. Um, it doesn't really happen for the most part. And I don't think any time in the last, like probably since what you're talking about, it probably hasn't really come to that where there's had mm-hmm. to be these outside meetings where not everyone was welcome or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause definitely that would be contentious to do that, especially nowadays in the collective. Uh, but um but yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how infrequent that's happened. So it generally works, um, and it it works. You know, there's always going to be some level of uh, things are difficult sometimes, but it works pretty remarkably well for how easy it could be difficult and just isn't a lot of the time. Yeah, it just blows my mind. Like thinking about it, I get I would get so frustrated. <laughs> I, I have to have like streamlined things and behavior. So then consensus building may not be for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, can we circle back and talk about the history of the Shea? Yeah. Um, you want to just take it? Yeah. Jump in if uh, I fuck it up. Okay. Okay. So the Shea's been around uh, in a variety of incarnations for decades. Um, 
I asked around uh, prior to this starting because I, I haven't really thought about a lot of this stuff in you know ten years, mm-hmm. um, and so you know the the Che buildings as they were built have been there you know since the late fifties, early sixties, sixties, yeah, yeah, and. Um, used for a variety of purposes. And then the Che, as we would recognize it, and as listeners of the pod would, would recognize it, is really more of early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, 1980. 1980 to be exact. Yeah. yeah. And what so happened that, in 1980? 1980 is when it became the Che Cafe. Mm. Um, before that, it was the Coffee Hut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it became the Che Cafe specifically with that name and as a collective uh, in 1980, mm-hmm. it seems. And so in the early 80s, it, there, were, there were musical acts that played, um, but it was really more of a center of, of student activism and kind of like, um, like outsider stuff. Not like outsider, like, uh, like criminality, but like outsider thinking, especially in the Reagan era. And, um, and then so the that persists there's shows that go on but it's not like like punk heavy shows it's more like kind of like outsider music and like stuff that doesn't fit into the mainstream of anything and maybe reggae and stuff yeah Yeah, i heard there was definitely a lot of reggae shows but there definitely were some punk shows because i've seen pictures of the descendants playing in the 80s yeah but that was like late 80s it was probably late 80s yeah yeah and so like so did black flag didn't play the show no no black flag dates Hmm. missed out um, Do you think they got voted down by someone outside <laughs> of the inner core of the collective? Somebody heard white minority and was all yikes. Uh, uh, Block. <laughs> um, that would be my guess. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't. I don't know. I'm um, just joking. Yeah, I'm joking. I, anyway, hey, the Descendants were allowed to play. I know. So the Descendants crazy. have way more super problematic lyrics, especially in that era. So. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that's like late 80s. And so late 80s is where it starts to take more shape of what we would like really recognize it as. Um, um, That's where... Because Straight Edge Hardcore comes in. Yeah. Like so Inside Out plays, Mm -hmm. um, Chain of Strength plays like all around that time. Amenity is around at that time. Amenity, Neighborhood Watch. Yeah. Probably. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What's the band... They had a record on Mystic. They're from Manifest Destiny. The Insolence. Now, yeah, the Insolence. Like, so they're around at that time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I know that that, like I said, like Inside Out and Chain of Strength has this huge influence, especially on like the development of hardcore in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And then, and then early '90s, it, like it uh, it drops again. Like, and there's there's not as much happening. There's other venues that are doing doing like hardcore events and shows. Um, and then mid nineties, uh, like well, 94, 93, that era, like, you know, then you have like the new age records scene, you have unbroken playing a lot. And I, I was talking with, uh, with Chris Kohler about this in preparing for the pod. And one of the things that he had said was that at the, like at the time there was so much violence at punk shows in San Diego that the Che was very much a refuge from that. Um, and so you could have hardcore shows without the, the violence that was happening. Like if it was at a hall or wherever else, why would it stay out of there? Is it just that you don't have like a, a giant crowd? I mean, it's a smaller room. Yeah. So you have maybe less knuckleheads, but it seems like 
But I think how it, can you keep it out? Because there's no security. Also, well, I think that it, they're booking different bands. Like so, if uh, you know, if uh, if if somebody at the Che wanted to book a band that was notoriously violent or had notoriously violent friends, like they're probably not going to get booked at the Che. Yeah, and I think that that remains true to this day. Whereas, like at a you know at a, at a hall or a rock club or whatever like there there isn't necessarily that same concern because the answer is just going to be bring in more security mm-hmm. um and and so the che became a refuge for that that was really run by uh, you know by by people who were involved in the scene itself um and so uh, i think that that also lends the che like a, a level of respect that other venues don't get you know mm-hmm. i think that uh you know, fighting at the Che is something that probably is pretty frowned upon. And so over the years, people who may have been more likely to get in fights at other venues may not have gotten in fights at the Che because they knew they just shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to put this place that's beloved to people at risk if they do that. So I'm sure that that played a role, uh, at least partially. But yeah, earlier on, I mean, especially you have a show with Inside Out and Struggle, you're not getting people that are probably going to want to fight each other. So, right, yeah. right. Yeah, like I'm thinking, so in the in the mid-90s, I'm thinking about a show I went to that was at the Showcase uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like Youth Brigade, Blank 77, and uh, UK Subs, maybe. Was it before or after they, like, remember there was two iterations of that? Like, it used to be like the dance floor was really narrow. Uh, no. And then they, like, broke it up, and then it was like a big room. Uh, it was when there was... Like a raised area surrounding the dance yes, floor. Yes, that, that was era. so perfect. Yeah, it was that. Era. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was there was all these all these Nazis there, which is like a weird thing to think about. Like, and um, uh, and so there was all these like punks and skinheads, and everybody's about to go at it. And then I just remember there's this like punk next to me. And bear in mind, I'm like a you know 16 year old punk kid myself and he this kid is just shouting after the gig after the gig like <laughs> like okay cool we'll all just like hang out watch these bands together and then we'll just go rumble in the parking lot or something um but like that kind of thing just wouldn't happen in the che because you're not booking yeah. bands that draw that like that element or like even that possibility like i i can't imagine you don't think you'd book youth brigade at the che I don't. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah. I didn't. I yeah. didn't. Maybe David will. No, no. <laughs> They're so positive, would. though. Fight to unite, dude. Dude, one of the one of the things that sixteen year old punk me was so bummed about was that it seemed like when Youth Brigade came out, they were like placing blame on the punks for standing up to the Nazis, and I remember just like being so disillusioned. Like, where? How did but, you take that? But like, fight to unite. Well, they came out and like scolded people, <laughs> um, and then I remember being like, but. But fight to unite, man. Like, yeah. And as an adult, I see it a little bit differently. Um, but like, uh, man, that was a rough show. It was a sad event. That sounds like a rager. <laughs> Blank I, mean, I, w- I would killed it. I would go this weekend. I would. That show was. <laughs> yeah, it'd be sick. Blank seventy seven were so sick at that show, and I think, like I said, UK subs played, and uh, they were great. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't, I don't even, I don't think Youth Brigade ended up playing. I think they ended up. Like you got shut off. down. I don't know if it got shut down or if they just said we're not playing because there's too much tension or oh. potential violence. I don't remember. I can't imagine that because I've seen them at some wild shows. Okay. And they don't. 
then I defer to you in that in that regard. Yeah. I always feel like there's someone with a lazy eye at a youth brigade show that punches someone. And there's always a big fight. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so then in um so then then it kind of morphs and then there's like, you know, the the mid nineties again, there's like a little bit of a lull. Um and then uh late nineties comes in with uh let's see, so that would be like prime locust time uh um a lot of 31g stuff and uh san diego bands at least this is where i get more involved uh, because my first show there is in uh 1998 uh with submission hold crimson curse and run for your fucking life and uh you know the show didn't start until like 11 p.m or something um and the bands were awesome and it was like nothing I had seen. Cause I'd only been to like, uh, like places like the showcase or at the time public storage, which is now chain, mm-hmm. um, like these bigger clubs. And so I had never been to a real DIY space like that. And I remember walking in and just being like, what is this place? It's so cool. Um, and I think that that's where, that's where like, I have a better understanding of what was going on. Yeah. So, and then you start volunteering. Uh, yeah. So I started volunteering in 1998. Right. Um, so same year as you went to your first show there. Yeah. Yeah. So I was playing in a band. Um, uh, it was like a, a, we probably, we fancied ourselves sounding like Osrotten, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we didn't sound like that. So Find Him and Kill Him was around in 98. No, no. This wasn't Find Him and Kill Him. This was a band with guys from Escondido called Antikrats. Okay. Uh, have a sick demo tape with hand-drawn covers. Okay. Look for it. It didn't make it on a Discogs. It did not make it on a Discogs. It was like total youthful punk. And uh, um, anyway, so we had played at the Che a couple of times. That would have been in 1998, but it was after uh, I'd gone to that show um, because I was just like fascinated with this, with this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 1998, just graduated high school, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, Brandon, who would later go on to be in Find Him and Kill Him, uh, he and I had this idea where we were like, let's do, uh, let's do a Halloween hardcore show or hardcore fest. Um, and we didn't know like anything about booking. We didn't know anything about how to do any of this stuff. So he had been in contact with, uh, with somebody at the Che who I think was probably Chris Kohler. I think. Um, and so we set up this Halloween hardcore fest. It was two days. Uh, one day was, uh, uh, dystopia Unra, um, and some other bands, the setup, maybe I don't remember. Um, and then the second day was Christ driver, final conflict and, um, phobia maybe. Um, and, it's a pretty heavy first shows to book. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just like, we like Unruh. Let's write to them. Uh, And I like final conflict has been one of my favorite bands. uh, As long as I've been listening to punk and hardcore. Uh Um, And so I've been in contact with them about having them come down. And, uh, and so they brought Christ driver and phobia with them. Um, And uh, it, it was awesome. It was so cool. Um, I think like each day was like five or six bucks uh, for it. Um, Dystopia was cool. Uh, 
Unra came out in Kiss face paint because it was Halloween, and it was just like one. It was one of the most brutal sets I've ever seen. Um, and I just remember sitting on the like front of the the stage, uh, and it was like a wave of people all just like doing the claw and yelling, um, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen. And so then I was like, I want to be part of this. I want to I want to do this more. Yeah. And so then I started volunteering after that. And then, so what was like your first meeting like? Was it was it cool? Was it boring? Like how were the politics at the time? It was fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, if if you don't know what's happening in a meeting, uh, it's fucking boring. It's a boring meeting. Um, but at the time, one of the main bookers was this guy Jay, and he played in that band Go 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 Earhart. Okay. Any fans? No? Okay. Um, and he had he he did a lot of the booking, if not all of it. And so he started showing me how to do some booking and there was there was two other guys who overlapped with him this guy mike and this guy ezra who ran the label slow dance records um that's the label that released the che fest 99 cd and so they had been doing some booking and so the three of them like helped me cut my teeth as how to start booking shows so how do you do flyers? Where do you put them? How do you contact bands? What does it mean if a band is asking for a guarantee? Uh, what is the Chase policy on guarantees? So what do they tell you how to do a flyer? They're like, in what iteration was Kinko's at at the time? Uh, were they on the card? They were, the on, they were on the, uh, the big block thing. Yes, that's the best for flyers. Yeah, because you can just... You just whack it and then tell me you made 20 flyers. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about that. We talked about like, okay, so you can't just put flyers at the Che. You need to go put flyers everywhere where somebody who wants to see this show might go. Mm -hmm. And um, that ended up being like a principle that I took like my entire 10 year uh, career at the Che was like, I'm going to put flyers everywhere where somebody who might want to go to this is going to see it. Um, be it a restaurant, be it a record store, AA meetings, AA meetings, wherever it might be. A lot of people at AA meetings. Yeah. Yeah. They want to rock, dude. (laughs) They got a lot of pent up energy. That's true. Um, and, uh, and then from there I learned how to do, uh, sound like in a a rudimentary way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then like, uh, over time, uh, so anyway, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So, so Jay at some point leaves, Mike and Ezra at some point leave, and then my tenure at Che Booking overlaps with a guy, Greg, who started doing a lot of like really big, kind of like more indie-oriented uh, shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg comes considerably later, though, uh, for, for where you're at right now. Does he? Yeah, Greg, Greg came, I don't know when Greg first came, but maybe it was around 2004 or so. Yeah. Because... Um, I came in 2000. I didn't do any booking, but I came in 2000, and it's crazy that you started in 98, but all the people you mentioned mm-hmm. as people that were doing all the booking are gone by the time I show up. Yeah. Every single one of them. And Jay had been there. Well, Spence has cleaned house. I did. <laughs> said, well, there's no need for you anymore. <laughs> I'm a tyrant. Um, uh, yeah. what, what, was the, what was the policy on the guarantee stuff? So that changes over time. So when I started, the policy was no guarantees. Um, We don't do guarantees. But you do, like, it's a 50-50 split? At the time, it was a 50-50 split. 
50% went to the Che, 50% went to every band. And then we'll decide how to break it up. And who decided who divvied it up? The promoter, the the Che member. That's the Gilman difference, right? You have a rep and you go into a room. Did you ever play there in your bands? Yeah, yeah. Which is always like a weird thing to do, especially if you're like a, a young band and you're in a room with a bunch of experienced bands and you're saying, who gets what amount of money? <laughs> um, so it's totally democratic, but that's a weird conversation. Um, so, uh, yeah, so all of those folks had left by 2000. Um, and then it was, and then I was there. And I know that there were people who came in and out. So I'm not trying to take credit, say I was the only one there. But like in between those years, like 99 and 2000, like I must have gone to shows or done uh, did shows five nights a week for a year. Um, Were you an earplug guy? Yeah. Well, no, I was a earphone guy. Oh, the Fred phones. Yeah, I wore big Fred Hammer inspired phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, during those years, I think this was 99. During 99, like we were voted best all ages venue and like the reader or something, uh, which was really cool. That was a big accomplishment for us um, because that meant that we were doing something in a way that aligned with like, uh, like our, our politics, so to speak, and our way of treating people and our mm-hmm. way of interacting with others um, in a way that was so different from general clubs and people liked it. So that was like a real affirming thing. Yeah. And in the, the year 2000, you said? 99, 99, 2000. 99 2000. I don't remember. Yeah, you probably had to mail in your ballot, right? No. Oh, shoot. Yeah. It's probably. before high speed internet. I think so. Yeah. You might have so. had to mail it in or call the number. Or okay. You can do it over the phone. Yeah. Something Maybe. Like that. It was like a little extra effort. That's pretty. Yeah. That feels good. Yeah. 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 It felt good. Um, and, and then so, so as people transition out, I start handling more of the booking, which brings it into like a much more like hardcore and punk focused uh, era. Um, So much so that we got a lot of shit because people say you only book hardcore punk shows. And I was trying really hard to accommodate all these different tastes, but I just couldn't do five nights a week of booking all this stuff that I didn't know a ton about. And to be honest, wasn't particularly interested. And really you're not doing all hardcore anyway, right? You're probably doing maybe once a weekend. Yeah. So the majority of your shows are not hardcore. Right. Yeah. I, rem- I, I spent a month in India for work mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, people would be like, oh man, that'd be such a dream. I'd love to eat Indian food all the time. Indian, <laughs> food, Indian food is my favorite. And I'd say, well, Indian food's your favorite food. And how many times do you eat it a month? Probably once or twice. Maybe. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you get it? Like, yeah. no, it, it's over exaggerate your head. You'd like to have it for every meal. Right. No. And I don't want to be at a show every night of the week. Um, but like I was, I was so entrenched, uh, and like just attached Mm -hmm. to the venue. So I was, I was doing a lot of shows. I was doing what I could, um, to, uh, to help make sure that it was sustainable. Um, did you put in a Murphy bed so you could stay there? (laughs) No, but I don't know that I'd want to sleep at the Che. People have. People did at that time, especially right around 2000. Remember in the back of the kitchen, there was a couch that had a pull out bed. Uh, that people slept on sometimes. Yeah, it was a weird time for sure. Um, very, very, very eclectic group of people mm-hmm. that were part of the Che. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had just total, total weirdos. And I'm not saying that in like a negative way most of the time, but you definitely had people that were like, I've never come across someone like this in my mm-hmm. life. 
you know i got involved i was 18 and i was thrust into this thing where i had never experienced these type of people been part of collective process or any of that and it's it can be jarring but it's also extremely exciting and i was working probably five shows a week as well for me at first it was very social i was going to hang out but i was also working the shows and stuff but it was like five days a week i can't even fathom the idea of going to five shows a week now that sounds like hell <laughs> no and if there's five shows a week you're booking i was booking three a lot of to them. four i was booking three to five of them because um, for a while it was just me and um uh maybe one other person booking that and that just wasn't sustainable and that was at the same time where we started to run into trouble with the university who was saying, you don't have enough student members to qualify as a student organization. And the, the reason you have this space is because you're a student organization. So you either need to get students or you're gone. And so we We should have booked more Japanese hardcore bands. That would have gotten hella students. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but that threw me off. (laughs) (laughs) No, you didn't have enough student oh, yeah, participation. Yeah, students, um, and so we we really started like driving to be active on campus again because at the time, like people had kind of filtered away, people had left, uh, you know, students that were involved had graduated and moved on, um, and it's hard to keep interest in a student organization when you're not a student. Yeah, um, and at the time. The Che was so like venue oriented that if you weren't a student and you weren't interested in the show aspect of it, there really wasn't much to grab onto. And so, like I said, so we started driving really hard to, to recruit students. And in the end, we ended up getting quite a few. And that brought in a lot more diversity, a lot more like eclectic tastes, um, some truly like 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 David said, and this is no diss, but like true weirdos, Yeah, um, which is cool because that's where... That should be. Yeah, no, totally. The Che and I guess the world at large needs more legit weirdos, mm-hmm. uh, really. And, and there needs to be places for them. And, you know, when and I, safe places for them, right? Totally. When, when I got involved, I, I just like, I had never been somewhere that felt like it was mine. Not mine in like an individualistic sense, but mine as part of this like collective thing where like you're immediately there, you're 18, and you're making decisions and you're here with all these people running this space. I, I, it was crazy feeling. It, it was one of the most uh, empowering things that I've ever experienced in my life, for sure. To, to be 18 and to go into that environment, be around the people that we were around and stuff. And I probably came in at like this real optimal time too, because this is probably right after they had done this push to get more people involved and all this. So when I got involved, it was super eclectic, mm-hmm. everything. There were a lot of students involved. There was a ton going on. There was a ton of stuff going on with the kitchen, uh, you know, with cooking vegan food and stuff, which was interesting to me for sure. Incontrol already and, had a seven inch out. She was going to pop. <laughs> which is how we mark time. Like what is the yeah. in-control release schedule? <laughs> oh, that, that's on the demo era. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, go on. Yeah, it was just it was just an exciting time for sure. And, uh, you know, being young and being part of something like that, mm-hmm. I, I can't stress how amazing it was, you know, coming straight out of high school where I freaking hated high school. You know, I had people like, you know, talking shit to me all the time because of my political beliefs, because I was vegan and stuff. And then going somewhere where all of a sudden there was all these people that I felt these bonds with and stuff. I was like, this is incredible to have this space. 
and just not feel like a weirdo, even though it was totally cool that we were weird. It just like was like, no, here I can just be myself. This yeah, is and you were only like a four on the scale. Oh, totally. Weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yes, 100%. Yeah. yeah. What, what's like the age span of the volunteers at this time? Um, like, so at this time, there, there's kind of two interesting things that are going on. Well, so the age span is big. And the reason it's big, like 15 to 50. Yeah, probably. And the reason that the, that there's such a big, uh, variation is because right around this time is there's some, some legal issues with the, uh, with the university. And if you're a cynic, you think it's probably like what the university had in mind all along. If you're not a cynic, then it's probably something different. I don't know. Um, but we had to go and like refile all this paperwork and have all these high level meetings with university officials. And we publicized it in a way to reattract old members who had history with this stuff because we were not students there. Uh, we had no understanding of what had happened before because there were no records mm-hmm. that were kept anywhere. And so a lot of older volunteers and older members came back to really help with this. Um, and this was early 2000s-ish, like 2001, 2002. This might even be before I got there, early 2000s. Yeah. Because by that point, there was definitely older people who are some of the people that were very strange. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the time I came around, because I was like, who are these people? Right. Like, I specifically was like, I have no clue what's going on with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are volunteers from like the early 80s who would, you know, come in, volunteered, and then somehow they're tracked down. They hear about what's going on. They reconnect. They start coming to meetings and providing all this history. But they, they see the Che through this crisis. The Che is allowed to remain where it is. Um, and then they kind of filter back out to wherever it is that they're going to go. But that crisis brought in a ton of new members again. And so there was, again, like more diversity, more uh, like eclectic interests being represented, um, which was great. That allowed me as the kind of primary booker to step back and say, well, I, I just want to do shows that I want to see. So that that worked out really great. And also it allowed us to, to reconnect with the student population at UCSD, which is incredibly important. It's super important there. Yeah, because to explain to people, the Shea Cafe is like, it's a little building on the UCSD campus in San Diego. It's a tiny little building right next to the Gilman entrance. And it, it you would drive right by it if you weren't looking for it. Yeah. It doesn't even have an actual address. It does now. It does? Yeah. It got an address? Yeah, it's different than the mailing address, too. Yeah. Right. 1000 South Scholars Drive, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it has an address. We even have a little thing up on the, yeah. on the building. It did not have an address yeah. for a long time. That's wild. Yeah, it's tiny. And it doesn't, it doesn't look like a new building. It doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't look like it belongs there. It's covered in, in murals. Um, and it's kind of in an area with lots of foliage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on the outskirts of the campus. You know, it's yeah. on the edge. And it's surrounded by a forest. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's, I've always been surprised that it's had such longevity just because it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's any reason for the, the school to want to put up with any bullshit. Yeah. Like, well, that's, that's one of the things that, that, that came up in a lot of collective meetings, especially when there was a legal issue um, with the university saying, we have no interest in having this space here. Mm -hmm. And 
it's a tough argument to make when we don't have any student involvement right. to say, no, the university should let it stay here. And one of the things that, that I kept thinking about during that time was like, was like, well, if, if I'm a university administrator, say in charge of like space usage or even just student events, and I'm trying to think, how can I maximize all of this space? And I look at this tiny little building that caters to like, you know, maybe, maybe over the course of the year at the time, like a thousand students, Mm -hmm. maybe. And I look at what can happen with that space and I go, I could put in, uh, you know, a multi-purpose room or uh, I could put in a space that 20,000 students are going to have access to and use it. Like that equation is a pretty easy one to figure out. Um, and so that kind of thinking drove us to say, okay, we have to get more students involved so that when this kind of thing comes yeah, up, we can say, you gotta be able to speak up. Yeah. Hey, yeah. we have 5,000 students who utilize this space every year. Yeah. Uh, and like, would you let people come in and like, it was it an open space? You get to show up and go read or something? So for a while it was, um, and it's gone through that a few times. So right around the early two thousands, the kitchen gets totally revamped in an effort to like expand the reach to students. Um, and so it's kept open during the day as like, uh, you know, a snack spot and come and buy some coffee, you can buy some snacks and, you know, hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, and this created a really interesting divide is that there was, there was an argument that the people who were running the, the business hours, right? Like the, you know, 10 to five hours of the Che should be paid. And the people who were running the shows at night should not be paid. And that created like a real divide because the business hours didn't generate any revenue, but the events generated all the revenue, but then we're not paying the people who were, um, who were bringing in the revenue. And so it, it created a lot of contention. And in the end, we did try paying uh, people because what we decided was, that even though the shows were what brought in the revenue, the student involvement was what allowed it to remain. Yeah, they're the loss leading yeah. thing there in order to keep it open. Exactly. Because they're your excuse. Right. Uh, and, and it was so, even weirder though, because while these people that were, you know, uh, cooking food during the day would be paid, the people who did like taxes and accounting and all of the like administrative work wouldn't be paid. Right. And it's like, what? Like, that is definitely, like, the bummer job. That person should get paid for sure. And it's probably... The yeah, but those people were probably never that good at their job. That's why there was always a Shea emergency every couple of years. <laughs> this is probably true. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, it's still, like, the most one of the most important jobs is to do that stuff. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, and it, just all the different things. It was definitely a weird time, yeah. for sure. But it was an interesting experiment and it was cool that the Che was open all day with a menu and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I did think it was, it was neat, Mm -hmm. but it it definitely was a strange just within the collective. Yeah. And you know, ultimately like the, the cool thing about it, even though I had, had some real disagreements with people who were involved in the collective at that time, like people would like, I remember leaving meetings just being furious, like at some of these, these topics, but what I recognize now was that everybody had good intentions. Nobody was coming in and saying, saying, I'm going to get rich off of this. 
Nobody was coming in and saying, how can I make this better for me? Everybody was saying, I'm trying to do what I think is in the best interest of the space. Mm-hmm. And so that that's cool. And I think if I were to address that now, I would handle that much differently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that that's a better way to solve most conflict, right, is you need to go beyond what people are saying and look at the intent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know? have to assume positive intent. Um, I didn't know that shit. Totally. Yeah. I didn't know that either. And the people I had the biggest disagreements with back then, I look back at them now and I'm like, oh my God, they put in so much work. Yeah. They did so much yeah. for the space. Like, it's crazy. But I just like, you know, on a personal level, disagreed with them on everything it felt <laughs> like at the time. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, we need people like them. Yeah. Like, Shout out Chris Bowling. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 100%. I disagreed with him on everything, <laughs> but he did so much. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's it's just nuts to get older and recognize those things and be like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1999, you decide you want to jump into the hardcore fray <laughs> and the find him, kill, find him and kill him demo yeah. comes out. This is a more straightforward band than your last band? Uh, Faster? Wait, we still have more Chase stuff to talk about. Okay. We got to talk about fests. Okay. The fucking fests. Um, so Chase Fest starts in 1999. Um, and this is the, the only year it gets a CD release. The only year it gets a CD release. It's a really eclectic three-day fest with... Uh, like the first day being really oriented towards at the time, I think what we would call screamo, but now we probably look at it and just say it's an aspect of hardcore. And then the other two days were different types of like uh, kind of countercultural music, indie rock and um, uh, like alternative, I suppose. Were you I there? wasn't there. You weren't there. I, I came one year later. I looked at the track listing and I was like, couldn't pay me to go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the third day did look good. What was the third remember? day? Didn't Reverse Old Man and a bunch of bands like that? No, play? that was the next year. That, that was, was 2000. Next, no, that was 99. That was 99? For sure, because that was not 2000. I was at 2000. Okay, going to Discogs. I can, I can guarantee you this. Let's see what Discogs yeah. has to say. The best radio is people looking up things on Discogs. So good. So um, good. What kind of music were you into, David, when you started getting involved with the shit? When I got involved, I was like really, really into metal hardcore. Like <laughs> it was it was two thousand and I just was super into metal hardcore and uh, you know, like I probably don't listen to almost any of the stuff that I was really into at that moment. Who were your favorite bands? Oh, at that time? I mean, I was real stoked when Walls of Jericho played at the Che and Poison the Well and stuff. I know you probably like Poison the Well, too. So Did Poison uh, the Well play at the Che? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah, Poison the Well played with uh, local favorites, American Tragedy. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that was a big show. Now, but Walls of Jericho did play that year, but they played with Undying, who I still love, and that was the first time I ever saw Undying, so that was awesome. Um, but I was into a wide range of Did things. both of those shows sell out? I don't know. Or get close where they passed? Uh, yeah, Poison the Well was packed. For yeah. sure, Poison the Well. I mean, because that, that would have been right when Opposite of December came out, yeah, or a little was, bit after. Little <laughs> I'm not familiar with the oh, catalog. Yeah. Okay, so Opposite of December is a huge record like even at the time okay um it was was huge um and so they they played i don't remember who they who they toured with and they but they played with local american tragedy who at the time was having like a local moment and Mm -hmm. they were big um 
And uh, yeah, that show was big. Yeah. I can't remember the Walls of Jericho and Dying show if it was that big, but Walls of Jericho was big, but I think they kind of had already faded off a tiny bit by that they point. They were big. But yeah. Um, yeah, I was into that stuff. But then also like we had a whole bunch of shows right around that time or within the next year that were incredible that I remember distinctly like Tragedy played in 2000. That was the first time... Probably any of us ever saw Tragedy, I would imagine. It was their first tour. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, please. Well, yeah, when's the first LP? 99? No, the tragedy? I think it was 2000. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. Okay. So this was, would have been right then. And uh, yeah, but there were so many diverse bands that played at the Che. I mean, please inform the captain this is a hijack played at that time. And that was incredible. I mean, they just blew me away. There was this band, The Assistant, that played that year. And they blew me away as well. They were kind of like chaotic screamy metal hardcore with emo parts something i would not at all like want to listen to (laughs) anything with that description now but i remember they played and i was just like holy shit like this band was so good everyone who was there was floored by them that night but yeah it was just that's the thing about going to live music right before you're like jaded yeah like i didn't really like a lot of the metal hardcore stuff when i was in my teens but like i remember going to the showcase one day and like I think it was like well, we saw Grimlock. It was like Grimlock, Hold Strong, yeah, maybe like Endeavor, and then that culture, that right? That culture band was supposed to play, and they dropped off the uh-huh. the tour, I think. And and yeah, you're just there, and it's like these aren't the kind of bands I like, but I kind of like the Hold Strong band a little yeah. bit, and buy a seven inch, and I bought the Grimlock seven inch, and it's like I don't know, it's it's there's. Something to being young and going and trying to like things. Yeah. Or going and just being open to liking things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, like, I remember a moment like that. It was 1998. And uh, a friend of mine and I were getting ready to graduate high school like that week. And Converge was playing Showcase in Corona. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I knew about Converge was they have a split record with Coalesce, who I really liked. And so we went and saw them and they come out on stage and here are these like kids, like they look like us <laughs> and they come out and they're just like, Hey, what's up? We're Converge. Boom. And it was just madness and chaos. Did Far play? Far did not play. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I was, I saw, I think I saw Converge in that era. It would have been, um, at the showcase. I think today is the day might've played. Oh yeah. Them. I was there. I put them both in the same. <laughs> it might have been that tour, but I know it was '98. It was right when "When Forever" came crashing. When "Forever" comes crashing came out. Yeah. Um, but like, but being exposed to that music, and then if you can see it in a venue like the Che, that is so intimate and connecting. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that it, if you walk away from from a show at the Che and you go, eh, like, I don't know about that, like there's some disconnect because you could see bands that you would not listen to on record or that in a bigger setting you would be totally turned off by, but you see them in that environment and it fucking goes. Well, it's near perfect to set up in, in the aspect that the stage is one step high. <laughs> uh, it's like 18 inches, 16 inches. It's maybe No, high. lower than 12 that. Inches. It's like 12 inches. Yeah. Small. It's like one step. Yeah. So, it's like the band is like you gotta kind of like take your dick out. Like you're you're right you're right there. Like it's like you're playing on the floor. Yeah, almost. And the one step is nicer for the people in the crowd, right? You know, to see them. But it's like you're confronted with this crowd right here. Mm-hmm. You gotta like show your stuff. Like you gotta be a good band. Yeah, you know. And and I think that 
the good bands thrive on that, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe some that like aren't up to the level, they wilt on that. Like, I think you're right, you know, and I think that's why as a venue, it's really cool because you can go and check out a band. And if there's a few bands on there, you can really like, mm-hmm. I feel like I, I have a good feeling for the band when I leave there. Yeah. Where it's like, if you go see a band play, you know, there's several hundred people there. It's like, you know, you walk around like, okay, every band kicked ass. Yeah. There's no like real, I don't know, like the, you know, the thumbs up, thumbs down, like, are you entertained? Or like a band's getting the hook. Right. Like, get but, these guys out of here. They can't play. But I think it goes beyond just like being entertained when, you, when you're when you at it in a setting like that. Like, am I entertained? Sure. But do I feel you in the space? And I think that's where bands live and die at the Che. If, if we don't feel you in the space, it seems weird. Whereas I think everybody in this room has seen bands play at the Che to 20 people mm-hmm. who you feel when they're there and you walk out and you go that was the best thing I've ever seen in my life that was crazy that was an assistant show for me yeah yeah, a band that I rarely think of anymore except in the context microphone of, oh sorry <laughs> yeah I, I, you know their assistant or a band I rarely think about now except in the context of they were that band that I saw to 15 people or 20 people that just was like holy shit this is good and you felt it right you totally did yeah 100% yeah and so so Che Fest happens in 99 just to bring it back sure. um, and it was it was really, great host Spence hey thanks appreciate <laughs> good to be here um, thank you everybody um, so so that was really driven by this guy Mike and this guy Ezra and they ran Slow Dance Records which released the Che Fest 99 CD and those are all live tracks uh, Discogs doesn't have any information on it so who knows? I don't know who played. I remember Blackheart played one day. There's a flyer for it on the wall at the chain house. So Reversal of Man definitely played one of the days. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, and that was like, that was a big deal. It was a big show. It was a big event. And then by 2000, those, Mike and Ezra, they've left. And so I asked them, can, can I do Che Fest 2000? And that really kicked off like the four or five years next that where Che Fest would that be rocked. That would really be hardcore centric. Um, yeah, those like, are the years that rocked. Like when you booked uh, Against Me to play the Che Fest in 2000. Hardcore centric, one of your favorite bands of all time. All definitely. time. All yeah. time. They played Che Fest yeah, 2000? They, they and played 2000. To a small room. Uh, you know, but it was packed though. It was packed. I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it was not super packed when no. they played. They I, played think, I think your recollection is incorrect. I think your recollection is incorrect. Disagree. Because <laughs> there was already, like, like they were already a talked about band uh, at the time. And we had them early in the lineup because we didn't, I didn't know anything about them. And so I was like, yeah, let's just put them here. And based on the description, because it's pre-high-speed internet, so like hearing bands you have to go find an actual copy i hadn't heard them so i was like great we'll just put them in this slot and i remember because it was still bright out it was like daylight when they played and the room was full um and i don't know how many people that would be in today's measurement um but the room was full and people were singing along and clapping and i remember thinking like this reminds me of like summer camp because you're in a forest and people are clapping and singing these like happy songs Mm -hmm. Um, but that was big. That was a big year. Um, and I think we did it. I think we did Che Fest as a hardcore fest, basically, uh, all the way through 2004. I don't think we did one in 2005. Um, because at that point, 
in 04 in control breaks up and you're like what's the point right again the in control <laughs> timeline guides all things um we're like if in control is not playing we're not doing it when did in control play Chayfest? um well i think we play well i think oh one oh two oh three it would have been those it sounds right yeah maybe um, two out of the three of those yeah um and so by 2004, there's more fests um, and the budgets for things are just like going nuts. And so like, so the dilemma was how... Yeah, because 04 Sing with Cali Sing pops with, up. Yeah, but well, so we, we had done one year, maybe two with Sync with Cali going on at the same time. And, or not at the same time, but like within mm-hmm. the same month or the same two weeks. And I remember just thinking like, I don't want to just replicate what just happened, but all these bands are touring in packages. So it's like, it, it becomes hard to distinguish. And, and then also there's bigger fests that are just starting, but they're getting like big reunion acts and just really big, big acts to play. Yeah. That that Dino dude from down here did a fest around that time too, right? Not at the Che. No, Um, no. Somewhere up there though. Somewhere. Maybe. You feel like you remember that? Vaguely, I know he okay. was he was doing booking uh, at a couple of different spots for a while that really focused more on like metal mm-hmm. and metal hardcore stuff. <clears throat> That's off the very back of my brain. Yeah, I don't I don't really remember it. Um, yeah, and then so I, I remember just thinking like I, I don't want to compete with this, and I don't have the money to throw it all. This. But let's talk about some of the happy stuff. So like, yeah, let's, let's toss it. toss out some lineups. Okay. Like, in the year um, 2000. Okay. Well, I don't... That's very specific. In the year 2001. Just tell us <laughs> some of the awesome bands that play the Shea Fest. Okay. The Shea Fest. Well, I'll give you uh, awesome bands that played Shea Fest uh, um, uh, in control. So we'll start with the best, clearly, um, and uh, work our way down. Uh, then I remember one year there was the Bane Promise... Um, Suicide File. Yeah, that was 03. That was 03. Um, Terror played a couple of years. Yeah. We did it one year. This might have been 2001 or maybe 2000 where it was an all-day event rather than a three-day event. We just did everything in one day. I think we were there for that. Yeah. And it was 18 That was cool. Throwdown. um, Over My Dead Body. Um, You look bummed. This is terrible. (laughs) I don't think Shea Fest was terrible. That's a rude thing to say. No, my tea is terrible. Well, I don't know. You did say 18 Visions played, so... I'm into it. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> but they're a, they're a band that you don't have to be into to be entertained by. Uh, like, they're an interesting, good band through, a, through kind of all the all the eras. This was, uh, this was pre-shooting their shot era. I, I'm, I'm happy that they didn't sound like Stone Temple Pilots at the time, yeah. but... Uh, that was actually one of those contentious bands where we were like, okay, Spencer, you can book them, but we don't really want 18 Visions to play. Yeah, I mean, but, two yeah. years earlier, that would have been a fight band. Yeah, yeah, it would have. Um, but things, I felt like I felt like things had changed enough, and and I mean, people were unhappy about it, but I, I was happy to, to bring them down. I was happy I to bring them down. he was singing on the mic stand in 2000. Yeah. Yeah, um, but they were they were still very much a, a hardcore band. Uh, they were mm-hmm. not kind of like a the 120 minutes sure. like alternative version that they became. Um, and then uh, another year, um, 
there was one that Tear It Up played uh, one of the days, and that was big. Um, uh, Cut the Shit would have been on that one. You remember anything? No, I mostly remember the 2000 and 2001 ones, but even that, it all blurs together yeah. at this point. Um, but that was a that was a cool time. Um, I mean, I love hardcore from that era. Uh, that's an era that really that like I feel really connected to, and so I, I love doing those those events and those those shows. Those are really special to me, um, even though I can't remember exactly who played. Um, but uh, other notable bands that I, I made a list uh, that I thought might be might be interesting. Um, uh, so. Uh, Green Day played the Che in the eighties. No, uh, in the nineties, mid nineties, mid nineties, mid nineties or early nineties. Okay, because what Dookie breaks in what ninety three, ninety four, ninety three. So this would have been really early. Yeah, this would have been like ninety one, kind of during that lull that I was talking about. Okay, and um, and did you talk to someone that was there? Yeah, they said they played twice, and one time nobody was there. And it was like one of the shows that David was talking about. There was like reggae bands, this Green Day band, and there was nobody there. And then yeah. another time they played and there was like 150 people there. Yeah. Um, uh, so Offspring, similar thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, early 90s. Yeah. They play. Ignition era? Uh, probably before that. Probably self-titled. Yeah. Uh, Nemesis uh, uh, time. Um, but as we go further, uh, oh, and then Descendants, which David had mentioned, um, there was a rumor that I did some investigation into people that said, oh, I think I remember Nirvana playing there, but I couldn't find anybody who was actually there. And I talked to Rob and he said he had no recollection of Nirvana playing there, but he did have recollection of them playing the pub, which is down the street from UCSD over in the mm. UCSD Student Center. Um, so I think that people are transposing. the. the yeah, that, that venue is a lot bigger, it's right? Bigger. Yeah, I think I saw Immortal Technique play there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I think it's been confirmed at this point. Nirvana did not. Nirvana play did not play there. Uh, other notable things: uh, My Chemical Romance played on an American Nightmare tour. That's right. That's right. Uh, I was there. I think I we must have played that, or I can't imagine why we would have been there. Because <laughs> I was there. Maybe maybe Overrated Body played, and we came uh, down to see them. Built to last. I can't. I don't. The last didn't play I don't know why I would have been there. Overminded Body might have played that. Maybe we came down just for fun. And it was a big show. Maybe. I don't know. You guys might have played. Maybe. Um, uh, so other other notable things. Um, uh, every time I die played. Oh, every time I die played that show too. It was A N. Every time I die and my chemical romance, and then every time I die played much later. Uh, like as they were kind of doing like a small venue tour. Aren't they a San Diego band? No, they're New York. Yeah, but they're they're huge now. Like Who's they're it? a big band. Oh. Who's the guy that like like took out it or tried to kill his girlfriend or something? Isn't as, that as I lay dying? <laughs> oh, okay. They're a San Diego band. They're a San Diego band. Okay. A, Chris, a Christian San Diego band. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I don't think they ever played the chain. No, I don't think I don't so. Think so. No. Uh yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, AFI played the Che. This would have been again really early in uh, in their career. Um, they could have done it though, all the way up to ninety eight ish. No way. They yeah, played. They played Soma side stage in like ninety five, and Soma side stage was a big room. That was a, that would have been like Soma people. side stage in ninety five. I'm trying to think. That room was n- okay. When would I have been there? 97? It would have been the same room. It would have been the same room? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. This is, it was not that big. No? I don't think so. No, in my yeah. mind, it's like four yeah. or five. And also, because Mad, Madball, when they did that tour with Earth Crisis, they played the side yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not that big. No? You don't... You think it's big? You think it draws more... It's more than 200? I think it was, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's all, it's all black. You can't see anything. <laughs> I don't true. know how to measure it. Um, but I think... I mean, I think that AFI playing Che would have been really, really early. Um, so there's that. Um, Billy Corgan played a solo show at the Che. That was um, horrible, actually. I hated that Yeah, show. that was a real contentious one. Yeah, it was. But Why? Because... You guys don't have a rule against majors, though, do you? We didn't have a set-in-stone rule against majors, but we definitely had a that's-probably-not-a-good-idea rule, um, you know, or policy uh, in regards to that. That one was contentious because of the price of the show. Mm. That show was, like, maybe 25 to $30. I can't remember. It was in that range. Mm-hmm. And was that to hit his guarantee? Uh, that was to hit something, I'm sure, in regards to how much he wanted to get paid. But... At the time, that was really unheard of at the Che. But I think we were in a place where we kind of looked at it and we were like, financially, it makes sense. Let's do this show. Mm-hmm. That show sucked to work, though. I worked that show. I worked the kitchen. A lot of people showed up. Yeah. Well, no, that's not why. It sucked because Billy Corgan's manager was a douche. He was just a total douche. And um, I just I could not deal with that guy. So mm-hmm. I did not enjoy working that mm-hmm. show because of that. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't there. That was after my, my time. Um, at that show, uh, Billy Corgan said Smashing Pumpkins played there in the early 90s. Oh, interesting. I, I couldn't find anybody who was there, yeah. though, so I, I don't know. I've heard that. Um, so you have your list, and, yeah. and it's convenient. Before I forget, can we talk about if there were any other bands that were rude? Oh, yeah. rude. Uh, Dashboard Confessional. Oh, I was just getting Dashboard that. fucking Confessional. Chris Caraba, is that his name? Chris Caraba? Yeah, that guy. Okay, so, you know, here's Take the it, thing. Dan. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> okay, so, you know, we make food for bands, or we did back then. Uh, it's not as common anymore, right? We would make food for bands. Uh, you know, to be real, the food wasn't always amazing. We're, you know, we're presenting them with a, a plate of vegan food. It could have been amazing depending on who was in the kitchen, but it also could have just been a boring plate of pasta, right? That's what it was that day. It was just pasta with marinara sauce, right? And so I uh, handed it to Chris, Dashboard Confessional. I did personally. And he proceeded to turn around, dump it in the trash, and go walk up to Spencer and say, they're out of food. Can you give me money to go buy food? So <laughs> I, I fucking hate him because he didn't even hide it. He just turned around, dumped it in the trash, and then walked up to you and asked for money. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I thought the food of the shade was always good. Well, that's nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I don't think a lot I, of that's David. I never yeah. had a bad meal. It was it was hit or miss for sure. Like if Keanu was cooking, it was definitely going to be good. If uh, shout out Keanu, yeah, for it. sure. But yeah, like it it could be hit or miss for sure, depending. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, we just made pasta with like gimme lean in it, you know. Yeah. Um, but then we got more creative over time, and David and Keanu were like you branch out to beans and rice. Well, that was something that I started doing because uh, because I found that it was it was inexpensive to get like a like a vegan Mexican buffet mm-hmm. for everybody, at least for all the bands mm-hmm. and the volunteers, than it was to go grocery shopping and try to like predict, and it saved so much time. Um, so that and also that was something that I thought was just like a nice courtesy to do for bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think anytime you give bands food, it's a nice courtesy. Dude, you don't have to take it. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's fucking awesome anytime there's food, especially mm-hmm. like, you know, lots of bands aren't getting paid. You could be the opening band, and it's like, well, it saved me money. I didn't have to go to Taco Bell after the show. Right. Mm-hmm. You and know? The, the only thing that, that I ever asked opening bands <clears throat> about the food situation was make sure the touring bands have eaten first um, and then jump in. And I don't think sure. that there was ever like anybody who walked away hungry. We usually had enough food to feed volunteers uh, as well. And then, um, yeah, dashboard confessional. What a what so a only one over all the years. <clears throat> um, I'm sure there were more. I, I thought. Can't. Didn't you say the queers before? Did the queers <laughs> play at the J? Yeah, really. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh man. Um, yeah, the queers played, <clears throat> um, and uh, I don't think that they were rude, but I think that the people who came to see them mm. were not accustomed to like a DIY venue okay. and were just like really tough to deal with um and but i think that the band was fine the band was totally cool um but by those metrics there's a lot of bands that we would put on that list where the people that came to see them were not pleasant to be around i mean and you know in a different way than that too where then there's like the bands that the like drunk punks would come out to okay i want to tell a story yeah (laughs) so in uh i think it's in like 2000 maybe 2001 we did the verrukers i was just gonna say is this gonna be the The verrukers story and it like uh You've seen UKDK? Mm-hmm. Dude, the Verruker set in mm-hmm. UKDK is so fucking sick. Yeah. Oh, Soldier Boy? Yeah. You're growing a mohawk and sniffing glue. Yes. Like, oh. Let's slam. <laughs> yeah, let's slam, bro. Like, that's what we're going to go do. And uh, so I was so excited to book the fucking Verrukers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it was their first U.S. tour in in years or if not ever. And so we're, we promote it. It's like a big event. And The year is... 2000, 2000, maybe nine, eh, 2000, we'll say, maybe 2001. And I mean, 500 people show up. Jesus. And many of them are just drunk punk kids. And it's mayhem. Like, we have people who are out, like, in the woods telling people they can't drink in the woods. And I don't know if it's you. It might be Chris Kohler. I think there's multiple people who say they were the ones who found this. So, who knows? Legend has expanded beyond what it is. Um, but just right in the trail, walking through the woods, there's just two people fucking. <laughs> like, <laughs> with a crowd of people standing around. Um, and uh, that kind of set the tone <laughs> for the night. That was a wild show. That was just wild. I just remember there was a lot of vomit in the bathroom yeah, at the end of the night. And stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was rough. Um, that, that, that was just, just crazy. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, that bands were particularly rude. There was an era where it was kind of like a like youth crew revival where all these like just like third tier bands playing in my eyes ripoffs and trying to, to emulate that style came through with this attitude of just like rude dudes on vacation. That was a little much. I, I remember being pretty bummed out on that. Were they flying out? Is that why? Uh, no, it wasn't even bands that were big enough to fly. Mm. It was just like, um, it, it was it was a weird time. It was a weird time. You can't remember a name. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but for the most part, I think bands have been appreciative. And if not, like I'm willing to give bands generally the benefit of the doubt because touring sucks. Like you show up and then you're at this weird place you've never been. There's no sound check. 
It's lacking the amenities you might be hoping for. But if they show up on time, parking's perfect. Parking is And load-in is perfect. Yep. And you can have a sound check if you show up on time. That is true. Um, I'll tell you bands who I always loved, loved to deal with. Um, I think, uh, so, like, locally dealing with... uh, Well, actually, I can't really think of any local bands that were unpleasant to deal with. Um, But bands that were just, like, super easy to deal with that are notable. Uh, Locust, always easy to deal with. Just awesome um, and brought tons of people in. Um, And so I know that, like... 31G is is pretty far removed from like hardcore, especially now. But at the time, like you have the Locust who are you know during during that split with Man as the Bastard and just playing this like viciously brutal music, and their shows were always wild, tons of people and just like easy to deal with. Um, Love that, um, and uh, um, you know Overminded Body always easy to deal with. But like th- those were big bands, run for your fucking life, easy to deal with. I can't, I can't actually even really think of any local acts that were uh, pains to deal with. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, let's talk about people who are nice. Okay. <laughs> like cool stories that will renew your faith in humanity after the dashboard confessional story. Citizen uh, Fish. Yes. Citizen Fish That's right. were extremely nice. I love them, and we did Thanksgiving with yeah. them. Thanksgiving so, dinner with them. Yep. Yeah. So we had done a show for Citizen Fish. It was an expensive show at the time, so eight whole dollars, which wow. required a whole separate meeting to talk about. And someone had to go to the bank and get some ones for change. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so we had a, a huge Thanksgiving dinner for them before, like with all these volunteers, and everybody made food and did a potluck, and it was it was nice. And so we included them, and they were like really appreciative of it. And then they come in, they have the show. It's bonkers big. Um, and at the end of the night, I go to them with a pile of money, and I'm like, "Here's your guarantee. Here's here's what we said we would pay you." And uh, Dick Lucas counts it, hands half of it back, and he's like, "That seems fair." And so he only took half the money. And I was like, uh, why? And he's like, that just seems right. Respect. Maybe they double their guarantee. So because most times you're not going to get it. Maybe. So you're better off asking for more than asking for like the <laughs> right amount. If most people are being like, yeah, that we could got, be. we got half. Uh, here. Yeah. Uh, that could be. Um, yeah. But you wouldn't always give it back. Right. So you get it back. That, that takes something to yeah. get it back. No, totally. Sure. Did yeah. you keep it? Yeah, we gave it, we just put it right back in the chase safe. And um, like, that was just really cool. Um, uh, that, that was awesome. And then uh, at the, you know, we did, there was a bunch of chase benefits that happened at the time. You know, Unbroken did one. Um, this was, I mean, not at the same time. That was, this was many years later. But bands have always, I think, really put on for the Che because of that experience that you get when, you, when you're there, not just as a band, but as a participant. Um, and uh, um, I think that that's true now, even though like I'm not involved, but I, I watch I watch the videos of what's happening there, and there's still that energy and that that like pursuit of something cool, of something that you can really feel in there. It's neat. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to hide behind. Like right. you were saying, it's like it's only one tiny step removed from being a floor show. Right. So. Right. But there was like like you know I mean. We did, I think, the second terror show mm-hmm. um, that was there, uh, and now you know terror's terror, and yeah. it's still putting on for hardcore. And um, 
uh, you know, I would love to see Terror at the Che in 2019. I'd love to see a lot of those things. Uh, you know, a lot of bands are, are passing us up these days to play at bigger venues. But well, you got I think you got to do them when they're not on on a tour with mm-hmm. like a package. Do a yeah, you got to do a one off and and make it happen. They, I'm sure they would do it. Yeah, yeah. Tara, hit up David. Yeah, dude. Yeah, do it. Um, let's jump in to you a little bit, huh? Okay. In 2000. One, yeah, the demo comes out. Demo like, comes out. Do you like your demo? So, this is the Find Him and Kill Him demo. Uh, right. I do not like that demo. Okay, it's rough. We recorded it at the Che, um, and it was the, the first lineup of Find Him and Kill Him, which had a different drummer and a different bass player. Mm. Um, and uh, they only last in the band, I think, just a little bit after that, or maybe one show. And then, so, you had a drummer that didn't think I was a racist. Do we have a drummer who thinks you're a racist, Matt Otley? No, Matt's a guitarist. Oh. Guitarist thinks you're a racist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't, that's the first I've I'm just fucking, that, and I'm fucking around. I mean, I'm cool with Matt. Good. Matt's a good dude. Cool. Um, but no, never a drummer. Just a joke. Okay. So Zach is not a racist. I'm definitely not a racist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the demo comes out, um, and at the time, uh, you know, we're playing Che, we're playing Coos. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, it was cool. It was cool. It was. Uh, I don't. I don't love it. Um, but it's a demo, so it's okay. It's good. You, you demonstrate yourself a little bit, right? To get ready for the next. To get ready for the next, right? Yeah. Uh, so the next thing that comes out is that you can't fuck with the kids seven inch, which uh, um, uh, our friends Sal and Alex from the PCH mm-hmm. put out. Um, and there's like there's so many versions of that record. I can't quite keep it straight. Um, but there's there's a lot, um, and that that was really exciting for me. That's that so was, cool! I never knew that was their label, Coastal yeah. Access. Yeah, Coastal what else Access. did they do? Um, I think Coastal Access did one more release, and Dead Is Dead did one more. So it's a split label release. One Sal's, one's Alex's. Okay. Um, I think they did one more after that. Maybe a couple. Um, sorry if I'm messing it up, um, but. Uh, they were just really big supporters of the band yeah. and I'd known them for a long time from going to PCH mm-hmm. you know, through high school. Um, and that was really exciting for me because that was the, that was the first record I had ever contributed to like the punk canon yeah. of records. Um, and the first time you heard yourself on vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> that feeling it's, it's crazy. Yeah. The most important thing about that record, though, is that I did backup vocals. So, right. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> nice tie-in. Yeah. 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 Bring in everyone part. from the table. That's, yeah. that's probably my only tie-in <laughs> for finding the questions, by the way. It ends there. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, then we do the split with The Dream is Dead. Okay. Um, and that came about as a self-released project um, because Clark, the singer of The Dream is Dead, um, this is like a little bit of an elaborate story, but uh, at the time, um, I was I was engaged to to Stacy, and then her ex boyfriend was Clark. He and I became friends. We decided that we aligned on a lot of things, so we uh, um, we decided we wanted to release a record together, and so we did uh, the split seven inch, which ended up having three different covers, and they did one song and a Misfits cover, and I think we did all originals on that. Um, 
Uh, and then after that, there's the We Know record, which Chris Kohler put out. Well, let's slow down a little bit. Okay. Guys. okay. <clears throat> let's take some time on your band. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you've now been booking the Shea yeah. for a few years, mm-hmm. and you want to jump into the fray. And Find Him and Kill Him ended up being a pretty popular band. Mm-hmm. So when do you start getting a little bit of speed? Like feeling that momentum and starting to draw. Well, I think the the first seven inch was well received. People liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of, it, it was, I think not necessarily unfairly lumped in with a lot of the Y2K thrash stuff, mm-hmm. but I think it, it wasn't flipped up hat, like costumery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a little more influenced uh, by early eighties. And then also by some like, like things like infest and mm-hmm. more power violence things, but it was, it was very much, it played in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so the, you can't fuck with the kids record comes out. It resonates with a group and people like it. And so then we're able to, uh, do more weekend trips. Um, but are you headlining the Che in 2002? No, uh, we don't headline the Che probably until 2003 or four. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> I realized that like, you know, anybody can headline a show and usually that just means like you're playing <laughs> later. Yeah. But you're the promoter, which means you can just, you can puss out and have your band play main support. Right. The rest of your life and just style. Right. Or you can headline. Yeah. And so what we like to do a lot of the time is we like to host. Mm-hmm. And so we knew that, that like, let's say tear it up was going to come play and they, they weren't as well known at the time. So we would have them play main support to us, which didn't mean a lot. That meant that they were playing to like a hundred kids and we were playing to 85 kids at the time. No, that was the move. I mean, that's the way I did it in art as well as, you know, if two bands came through that weren't a hundred percent well-known, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have an in control headline. We'd have those two bands play under us and then I'd have a local opener, right? And you know, I, and sandwich them right in the middle. So <clears throat> people are there and then mm-hmm. people don't leave after, after we play because there's a chance that half the crowd will because they're right. just there to see us. And and that's the move. And so I always like to think of us as like a hosting band. Like mm-hmm. we're going to host you to come and play. Um, you know, and something David and I were talking about the other day was uh, the idea of being really thoughtful about how you book your own band at the Che. Because if you're a promoter and you're just like, I'm just going to put my band on every show, mm-hmm. that's not the move. Like, that sucks. Yeah, um, agreed. I think that when you're a promoter working within like a specific scene, uh, especially within hardcore, is it's your job to, to create that scene. And so if you're putting your band on every show, you're not giving space for other bands to come up and develop. Sure. Um, and so that was something I was always really cautious of. I tried to to not book any of my bands too much on big shows and to say, oh, we're going to play main support all the time. Um, so instead, I wanted to, to bring more local bands to mm-hmm. be able to say, you play. And one of the things that kind of made me leave booking was the the rise of huge packages with no space for locals. I wanted to talk to you about that because I, that's one of the big things that completely changed hardcore Mm -hmm. and doesn't get really discussed too much. Yeah. It it bummed me out when it started happening and going to to agents and saying, Hey, it's cool that this is a four band package, Mm -hmm. but one of these bands is from LA. Like, can they sit this one out so we can get a local 
to play. Yeah. No. And like, I get that there's the package, but like, dude, these guys are from LA. Like, yeah. They can sit it out. Like, it's fine. They just played the Che last month. Like, yeah. all will be well, man. Yeah. Um, and so I think really like going to bat and advocating for your local bands is important. The, the huge package tours, I mean, I'm talking like four or five band packages. It was the beginning crazy. of killing out a lot of the regional aspect of yeah. hardcore. Because basically, before you could do what you and I were talking about is have a local band headline or a local band play main support and, mm-hmm. and just be really meshed in with these bands that come through. So, you know, whether the local is adding fans to the out of town band or mm-hmm. vice versa, right? It's a living, breathing organism. Yeah. And when, yeah, I went to the packages of like the four or five bands, it's like even if they let a local on, now the local's opening, Local's you know. Opening. And it's like you make, honestly, they should turn down the show because mm-hmm. it makes them look like shit. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, oh, like our big hometown band is <laughs> is opening the show and there's no one there. And then like, how are they going to like maintain like even the confidence to go and headline? Right. Plus you have all these kids now that are like, oh, well, they're way below these bands. Right. So I'm not going to get know? there. And, and like people make judgments about like where the where the placement is and then you know promoter or not promoters agents had even started including in contracts like like when you promote this you cannot break up these packages mm-hmm. you cannot put your local support anywhere other than yeah. tiny on the flyer or the promotion and like number number one like i just think that's so micromanaging like seriously knock it off but then the the other part of it is like that that kills regional hardcore that kills regional aspects so the same show that have that plays in la is the same show that plays in portland is the same show that plays in seattle is also the same show that plays in san diego is also the same show that plays in phoenix like that just doesn't do a lot for me and so that, that was one of the things that i started to look at and i said like like mm, i think it's time for me to hand this off to somebody because I, I don't like this. Yeah, I don't like that either. Yeah, it, like it, that should get discussed more, you know. And that's a that's a very interesting right turn that Hardcore took mm-hmm. right around that time, oh four ish. And it drives door prices sure. way up because now you have to cover four touring bands. And while I think that, like, you know, if you're an opener on a band or on a big package like that, getting a hundred bucks, okay, like that's fair. Um, I don't think that that if you're on tour, you should. Uh, go broke trying to do it. I think that the getting compensated is fair, but like that hundred dollars is lost. And so trying to cover a four band package or a five band package mm-hmm. on a room that holds maybe 200 people on a Wednesday night with an $8 door price is just tough. Yeah. It's just tough. Um, and so when, when agents would say, we'll just raise the door price to 10, but now it's going to decrease people willing to come out. So it, it's, it's a tricky balance to find. Um, and I know that when I was booking, I certainly tried to find it. Um, and I imagine it's an ongoing conversation now. Isn't that another dumb thing that it like went to, it, I feel like it went from five and then it compromised on eight forever. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't we have just ripped the bandaid and gone to, 10 gone to 10 and like take the suffering for the six months of the year. But it's like, <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to deal with all those fucking one dollar bills? That's uh, the worst. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just go to ten and like maybe give them a sticker when they come in. Yeah, and door prices had had always been a contentious thing in meetings and 
towards the end of my time there, what I was advocating for was if there were touring bands on the package or touring bands at all on the show, the show should be $10 flat every time. If it's just a local show, make it whatever you want. But if there's touring bands, it should be 10. Um, at the time it was not a popular opinion. I think that's really fair. Although now you got to go 15 probably. I think 10 is okay. Yeah. I think 10 you can work. We've gone up a bit. Eight is a normal uh, like show <clears throat> with local bands now mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to five. There's still bands that come in that want to do $5 shows, but we try to encourage them to go closer to eight, at least mm-hmm. seven. Uh, you say like, well, yeah, we'll do a $5 show, but now the split is, is 80 to 20 right. or 90 <laughs> yeah. to 10. Right. Right. Like you're just giving up your part of the split. dude. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it's pretty normal now that there's twelve to fifteen dollar hardcore shows That's and good. stuff like that. Uh, maybe even a little bit higher than that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, up to twenty perhaps. Um, and then some of the non-hardcore shows will be routinely around fifteen to twenty. Let's and, say, which I think is I think is fair. Like I'm happy to to pay $15 to go see touring hardcore bands. Like, I think that that's reasonable. And one of the things that I, that I've always loved about the Che was that if you don't have the funds, you can volunteer. Yeah. So it means cleaning up at the end of the night, like helping in some way and you can get in. Well, I want to pay the bands enough that they come back. Right. Because San Diego is not in LA or New York Mm -hmm. where like the bands are going to come for sure. We're like skipped. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, you know, there are certain bands that always come now, and I'm so thankful. Like, AF always comes. Madball always mm-hmm. comes. And it's like, take my fucking money. <laughs> you know, like, you want 20 bucks at the door? No problem. Cool. Hike it to 30 if you want. I I want to pay whatever me and the other people in the room mm-hmm. can, can do so you can sustain this lifestyle of coming and playing to me once a year. Right. Because I want to see your band once a year. Right. You know, I want to so, see your band. Yeah. I want to see your band. And, and, I'm ready to pay for it. Yes, and figure out what it's going to cost. And yeah, if it's 20 bucks at the door, if it's 30 bucks at the door, I don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spend it once a year. It's like, <laughs> that's my Madball money, dude. Right? Yeah, I'm going to see AF and Madball once a year, hopefully. And I'm going to spend whatever the fuck it costs. Just like any time a bitchy where he comes through, I'm going to spend the money to go mm-hmm. see it. Like, so whatever, take my 40 bucks. Like, they mm-hmm. come every once or two years. Right. I'm going to go see it. And, you, and you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be cool. And, and at a club, you don't have the sliding scale that you might at the Che, which is, I think, different. Um, but then you talk about the Che, and it's like, how much more would I pay to see that band play the Che? Mm, it's like, I might, I might pay $50 to see Madball mm, play the Che. That would be sick. Yeah. That would be sick. We'll pass it along to Madball. <laughs> <laughs> so they come through, tell them to hit up the Che. No, they transitioned. Like the the last time I saw them play All Ages was the place in Mira Mesa. The, the scene. The scene. Yeah. No, 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 no. What's the other one? The epicenter. Oh, so epicenter, I'm playing the epicenter, yeah. and it was not super good. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of like did the transition of following AF, and now they play the bars, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's doing really well. Yeah. You know, it's like fully packed. People are having fun. You know, they seem to be having fun, and it's like that's rad. If that's like what got you your second wind in like a a third tier city, yeah, make that move. Go where your crowd is, man. Yeah, yeah. Go where your crowd is. Um, yeah, I was listening to uh, to some bands at a, at some shows at, and they were talking about where they wanted to play, mm-hmm. and they were talking about like, well, we only want to do like this kind of show, and it didn't. It wasn't like an age related show, and I was thinking like, like. Either you know your audience really well, or you're kind of guessing, 
but like play where your audience is. So if your audience is going to the soda bar, yeah, go play the soda bar. If your audience is playing Che, mm-hmm. go play Che. Yeah. Yeah. And are you booking like Shay's fully firing? Yeah. You guys like book every night of the week if a band's available? Not every night of the week, but no, yeah. No, there's not a show every yeah, night, yeah, but yeah. like if a band's touring and oh, yeah, we need sure. a Tuesday night show, yeah. they still book Shay. Yeah, one hundred percent. We'll even we'll even move our Monday meeting to another night if people really want a Monday show. I mean there's week there's weeks right now, especially in the summer where there's five shows a mm-hmm. week, you know? So we're we're one hundred percent like fully functional right now for sure. Ever since we reopened, which was like a year and a half ago now, mm-hmm. um, we've been totally fully functional. So let me um, ask you about that, and then we'll jump back to finding McKillum. I heard a rumor that Aaron Cooley was an angel and helped a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, he was in charge of the entire project. Uh, he works. I, he might not be a direct employee of UCSD, but he works for them basically full time uh, as a uh, project manager, basically. So he was the manager for our project, which is just the most insane, just random thing that's, that happened. That's so cool. Yeah, totally. So it, cool. It changed the game for our renovations, uh, having him there, because he, he really, he really uh, you know, pushed for everything to be exactly as it should be for the Che. And he knew things that other people don't. Like when installing the fire sprinkler systems and stuff, he knew we need to route it right up here at the very top of the ceiling uh, because people might grab it otherwise because they're going to maybe grab the rafters. You know, Someone else, he says, would have just put it along the rafters because that's the cheaper, easier way to do it. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot that we gained from him being... Him being our project manager. That's hilarious you say that. That's so funny that like, yeah, you have a hardcore dude and comes in and he's like, you can't put the sprinklers there because dudes are going to be hanging from those like during the crazy shows. Yeah. We just played the show at like this bar in Ventura, Retali, and like there's a bunch of people hanging on shit very similar to the Shea. Mm -hmm. And I guess they were really worried because like at one point there was a bunch of people hanging on the same pipe and it was the sewer pipe. It was like, oh, that would have that would have ruined the night. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, gross. why do you have a like? Why do you have an open sewer pipe running through? But it's like, I don't know. For a normal bar, they're not planning on people hanging on the thing, right? right. And then the shit really would have come. Yeah, <laughs> shit would have gone down, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you do an LP in 03, and that's when Find Him and Kill Him takes off. Yeah, so we do the the LP, and the LP originally came out on Happy Couples Never Last Records, which was uh, my wife at the time and Clark. Mm-hmm. Her ex-boyfriend. It was their label. Um, and Very passive-aggressive name. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of foretelling, I suppose. It's mm-hmm. weird. Um, and so that that comes out as a CD-only release. Oh. And it was uh, it was one of those CDs that was kind of like happening at the time, like with the clear and then just like the tiny little thing because it's only thirteen minutes of yeah. music, thirteen yeah. flat. Um, I had somebody tell me one time. In 13 minutes, it says the word fuck over 75 times. Oh. That's sick. That's a good claim to fame. Yeah. That's um, like Rambo and Kills or something. Yeah, that's right. Know? It's like a... Find him and kill him to fucks is Rambo to Kills. That's an SAT level analogy. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I'm um, working on my dissertation, man. Well, I'm going to switch. I'm just playing. Um, and, uh, and so that comes out CD only, and that got in more stores. <clears throat> um had just better distribution. Oh, three CD is very of the time. Yeah. Like that's kind of the, because the second record we did with 
Dave, mm-hmm. he didn't do the vinyl. He we did. had to find someone else to do it. Who did the vinyl? Oh my god! Um, this is the truth hurts. Yeah, the truth Martyr hurts. Did the Martyr. Martyr did the vinyl. Yeah, that like popped up and like did some shit for it. The reason why I have a Madball test press is because uh, they did a they did a Madball seven inch. They do uh, New York hardcore. I think that, that's the one. I think so. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, sick. Martyr was Martyr was happening. They popped time. up for a minute. Yeah, they did the Modern Life is War LP. Yes, the first one. Man, um, what an what album. a find. Fuck. I love what a that find. Record. I love that record too. So, good. so yeah, so Finding the Kiln does does that, um, and uh, and it it goes. People like it. It has uh, you know, um, yeah. Like I said, it's thirteen minutes of music. We tour on that. Um, we do a couple West Coast tours. We do um, what was intended to be a U.S. tour, but essentially ended up being just a Midwest tour. Okay. Um, and uh, um, you know, played it with. Uh, with uh let's see play play with bread and water mm-hmm. in um in texas i don't know if uh, i don't think they're a band that gets much like talked about much but it was like they used to and like because you got to remember oxnard is so close to galita and we, yes. got all, we got all the heart attack stuff yes it was very heart attack they, yeah they were definitely one of my favorite chase shows yeah for sure bread that was and water. A, yeah. yeah they were so good so bread and water <clears throat> they come back out and they're going to do a show and it's the same night as we're trying to do a nine shocks terror to- terror show. Mm-hmm. And so we look at it and we're like, so we'll host that show. And because, you know, like it's San Diego, I think is being generous to say it's a secondary market. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we want nine shocks to play. We want bread and water and Garuda to play. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, both two Texas bands and then us, and it might've been another local opener too. And uh, I got a call from another booking agent who wanted us to book like a really big national metalcore act. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, we'll do it, but we're, but we have to combine it with the show. And they threw this huge fit about it. Nope. You can't do it. No way. Move your show, move the nine shock show. I was like, I'm not moving the nine shock show. Like, it's already booked. Yeah. And um, Tony Herbert will kick your ass. Right. Dude. And I'm afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we end up doing, the Nine Shocks, Bread and Water, Find Him and Kill Him show uh, at the Che. Mm-hmm. Big Metal Core Act plays Epicenter. Sell out crowd at the Che. And at the time we were selling out at 300, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to see Nine Shocks, which is sick. That so is cool. so rad. 50 paid at the Epicenter. <sighs> What's up? What was the band? I don't want to talk about it. Oh, um, man. No, nah, no. Nah. Okay, you'll tell me after. Yeah, I'll tell you after. The Patreons sent an email and we'll, 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 let, we'll let you know. Yo, subscribe to the Patreon to get the dirt on some of this stuff. Um, yeah, and I remember thinking, like, at that time, like, dude, that is a triumph of hardcore. Yes. Like, that was so cool. Um, and uh, anyway, so Fire and Kill Em Tour. I would go out to Texas, play in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, and, and you know this from doing multiple tours and vans, just tons of long, hot mm-hmm. night driving. Sure. Um, just brutal. And this was the biggest tour that we had done. It was the only tour that wasn't a West Coast tour. Um, we end up playing uh, like all Midwest dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay. It's fun. It's cool. Um, we end up... Um, I think we come back through Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. There was um, what was a band, Folsom. Yes, at the Hammer House. At the Hammer House. Yeah, we play the Hammer House, and it's like no joke. 
110 degrees at night. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, dude, it was it was wild. Um, and uh, but then everything else after that, we just did West Coast. Um, just made it up to Seattle. Um, I think twice. Uh, to play and uh, that was actually probably where our best out of town show was uh, Matt Weltner uh, from The Answer mm-hmm. uh, did the show for us at a VFW hall or no 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 it was a church oh. it was a church hall I think um, and it was it was big it was like the biggest out of town show we had played it was a lot of fun kids were psyched we sold merch which was like mind blowing yeah. to us um, and Matt paid us super well which was cool and then a uh, fun Ben Who fact, uh, we walk out and we're driving. We're like, man, that was awesome. We can afford to eat today. This is great. And Ben Who's like, yeah, I wanted to go take a shit in the bathroom and wipe it all over everything. <laughs> we're like, why would you do that, Ben? <laughs> like, well, because it's a church. I'm like, dude, that church just paid us <laughs> and we got to play with cool bands. <laughs> like, that was awesome. And uh, Ben's like, yeah. But I still would have done it. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so does this ever come out on vinyl? So this comes out on vinyl uh, right before we break up. Okay. Uh, Jeffrey at one six o one six o h. He puts it out on vinyl, just a limited five hundred press. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, last show covers? No, no last show covers because. Um, it was just the red and black hundred pressing and then 400 on black. Mm-hmm. Um, no last show covers. And then we break up in, I think we play our last show in 2006, but we had essentially already been broken up. Um, we, we hadn't played at that point because Brandon. Well, the last seven inches, 04. Oh, the last seven inch. Dead. Yeah. Is and we 04. didn't talk about the LP, the cut them to pieces LP. No, that's what we're talking about. Oh. Cut Them to Pieces is the one on Happy Couples and 160. Oh, you went right from We Know to Cut Them to Pieces. Yeah. And I was not aware. Oh, yeah. So We Know, like, that was just a one-sided seven-inch. And then Cut Them to Pieces comes out. And then we must have played our last show in 2004. It couldn't have been mm-hmm. 2006. Because Is Fucking Dead comes out on Scott McGrath's label, who released the Terror record. That's right. This is when it, it changes from Takeover to Old Guard. Yeah. And so he did the terror record as takeover. I think he did the distance record as takeover and the vendetta and the vendetta record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then he switched over to old guard and did the, um, the find him and kill him is fucking dead seven inch mm-hmm. and the, uh, and the dangers record. If I, if I'm recalling it correctly. Um, and the, it's and I think the second vendetta <laughs> after that, I think there was two. And I thought one was on old guard. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, Verity. No problem. Uh, I don't remember. I remember Vendetta was sick. They were. That's what I remember. Um, but then the uh, Is Fucking Dead 7-inch comes out. Those are the last songs we did. Um, and then we break up in 2004. So I think we play Chayfest 04, and that's it. That's yeah. the last Chayfest and the last Find and Kill em show. Until you do a, a, you pop up and do a last show? Because mm. you say, oh, okay, that's it. No, no. I, you I do Last was, Priest. They never overlap. Yeah, they never overlap. And you um, do Last Priest right away. Yep, Last Priest happens in 2005. Same dudes? No, Last Priest is me and Matt from Find Him and Kill Him. Mm -hmm. And it starts... The guy who thinks I'm a racist. Yeah, yeah. Matt (laughs) thinks you're a racist. Um, And... uh, I'm just fucking bald, dude. (laughs) I don't know, you gotta look. No. No. (laughs) Who wants to go... I was like 20. 
I started going bald. You bick your head because you'd be bald? Oh, yeah. Really? But I don't bick it. I, I do a zero clip. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You got to... Well, Roger told me once he bicked his head and some of it didn't grow back. So I've been hanging on to this widow's peak for like 19 <laughs> years, dude. It's looking good. I know. I think yeah. so, too. It's I went to a guy good. right down the street. Nice. <laughs> did all this. Took like fucking 45 minutes on my yeah. beard. That's a clean line on your beard. Yeah. That's nice. He's a very good, good dude. And shout out to the barber down the street. Yeah, it's which is right next to like a, a smoothie shop, mm. which <laughs> I'm yeah. not buying a smoothie there, dude. It's like too close. <laughs> like they share a fucking inner door. Huh. I'm like, I can't have all the fucking... Yeah, you can get a hair smoothie. <laughs> Just thinking about it is so bad. Nice. But yeah, they did a great job on the beard. They did. Anyway. Anyway... So, yeah, so Last Priest is me and Matt, and uh, it starts with uh, Pete on drums. Pete's the guy from, he's from Hermosa Beach, I think. Um, And, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then Dan is playing bass. Dan, who played in the plot to pull up the Eiffel Tower. And so we start playing. We do a tour, um, and uh, um, uh, Pete leaves after that tour, and then Brian Hill comes in on drums and he also played in the plot to blow up the Eiffel Tower mm-hmm. and he played for a long time until real recently in that band Waves and he's just a fucking caveman of a drummer. He well, that so was a really good band, weren't they? Plot to, no, plot to, the plot to blow up the Eiffel Tower. I thought they were good. Um, I think that uh, at, when they started, they, they to me, sounded more like Embrace or Rites of Spring mm-hmm. and then really kind of went in a, in, a, in a different direction but still like real punk, um, real like... Uh, like innovative and kind of doing their thing. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I booked them on uh, on a. It was I think it was like Terror, Some Girls, uh, two other bands of that nature. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, the plot will fit really well mm-hmm. in this for like the kind of like embracey kind of stuff. Yeah, it wasn't my best choice that I made. Yeah, but, you know, trying to diversify that lineup. Have bands ever gotten insulted by like? Like, you're like, oh, you should be on the show. And they're like, well, I don't know if that's going to work out too well. And you're like, no, it'll be great. And then, like, it's not they eat their dick. And <laughs> uh, I don't know if they've been ex- insulted. I think that bands have been rightfully bummed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think that that's something that you take a chance on as a band. Yeah. One. But, like, also as a promoter, I think it, uh, an eclectic lineup is cool. Um, and I think that, that I would like more lineups like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there's that, there's the show coming up that at the time we're recording this is this weekend at the, by the time this comes out, it will have already passed, but, um, it's at the Che this weekend with, uh, like magnitude mm-hmm. and some other kind of like heavier hardcore bands, but then minus uh, Narco represent oh, minus is playing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's sick. Um, but there's another, there's a band playing, um, it's more like shoegazy, okay. kind of like pop stuff. Um, uh, this is the backtrack show, right? Uh, There's two hardcore shows this weekend. It's not so the backtrack show. Oh, it might be the backtrack show. It's either that or the Eco Strike show. It's the backtrack show. Oh, yeah, Eco Strikes this week as well. Yeah, Eco Strikes on Saturday, backtracks on Sunday. It's the backtrack show. I'm um, going to Nas. Yeah. What? I said I'm going to Nas. Oh. Sorry, dude. I'm going on vacation. Oh. It's going to be sick. Where are you going to go? Uh, Turks and Caicos. Oh, Jesus. It's a real vacation. Yeah, it's a real vacation. Usually, usually like, people should, I'm going on vacation. Where are you going? Oh, that's not going to go to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> or no, I'm going to the river. No, no. Uh, uh, Turks and Caicos. Yeah, okay. going to Turks and Caicos. It's well, a, a graduation uh, gift uh, for uh, uh, essentially my stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're 
my girlfriend and I were high school. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So we're taking her and her friend, uh, to Turks and Caicos. Sick. Yeah. That's great. It's going to be awesome. A legit beach vacation. Dude. You're wearing flippy floppies. Yeah. Some boardies. Do it. Oh, it's going to be great. SPF 50 or higher. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Please. Um, so last priest, you (laughs) tour, you tour off the West coast at all. Last tour, the last priest only ever tours the West coast. Um, and uh, you still give that Seattle love. Spencer always giving that love in Seattle. Yeah, we still we still got love in Seattle. It was cool. And then we play um, uh, Sound and Fury at the Alpine, um, and it's okay. Probably the biggest crowd we ever played in front mm-hmm. of as Last Priest. Um, and then as Brian starts doing waves more, uh, it kind of falls, mm-hmm. dissolves, and then Last Priest is done. Um, and then, uh, that, that was a bummer. I, I, last priest, I think was one of my favorite, I think that was my favorite band that, you were in. that I was ever in. Um, uh, you know, I, I really liked playing with that group. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Um, they pulled a little more outside influence. Yeah. Yeah. It was different. Um, I think what we were probably going for was like a blast, like hardcore hybrid Mm -hmm. um i don't know that that exactly came through um but i I think that people didn't always know what to do with the band Mm -hmm. um and uh um but i I like the record a lot i think the record i think the record is good the self-titled 12 inch the lp on 160h yeah yeah that one and then i also actually like the the hard calipers seven inch that colin uh put out too i think those are good records um but yeah so then which came out first so disc, here's the thing about Discogs I think is so crazy yeah. is, you know, a lot of times it always says a year. Yeah. But you're guessing when two things come out in the same year. Mm. So for Nardcore, uh-huh. when the big four albums all come out in 84, uh-huh. I still don't know what order they came out. <laughs> like, did In Control come out before what happens next? And, mm. you know, well, the aggression is actually a year earlier and the RKL. I think aggression's 83, uh-huh. RKL's 85. Yeah. But Which so one do you go for harder? Of those two? Those four. Oh, well, we're adding five with RKO. Okay. What happens next is the best. Yeah, every time. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. But uh, Stala gets me in the feels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, Dr. No is like, is close to like a discharge thing yeah, as yeah. we got. And you might have to say that they were the best band. So even, even though they don't, uh, get, they don't get me in the feels that way, they're probably like, mus- musically, yeah. they're the rage oars. I'll give that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Man, I love what happens next. What I a love record. It. What I a love record. Um, so anyway. you guys break up. And so you, we break and, up. <laughs> and you're like, I don't, I'm not going to do music now for seven years. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't do a band and then for seven years um, and uh, then did Suspect. Uh, talked to Paul uh, from Tear It Up and a litany of other bands. He moved here though, he right? You weren't here. doing like long distance. No. Uh, he was talking about doing a band and he had started doing it with Nick who was in Knife Fight at the mm-hmm. time and then they had a, a bass player who I think, The drummer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then I think they had a bass player who played... And he was in a... Go through his... Sorry, he was... Nick? So the same guy that did No Reply? Was Nick in No Reply? No. No? No, no. No, Nick was in Knife Fight and he played in a band uh, called Trench Rot and he was playing... He He might have been playing in... Like a revamped version of Doctor No or something. Okay, I don't remember one of those bands, like a newly like yeah, yeah, yeah. band. Um, but I might be getting that wrong. Um, sorry, Nick. Uh, so Su- suspect is a shit ton of songs in two years, right? 
Wait, we do? Yeah, because the, the, you put out a cassette that has 12 songs. No, there's six songs on that. Oh. Yeah, no, no, there's not 12 songs. There's six songs on the cassette. Fucking Discogs. Blowing it. Uh, no, there's only six on that. Okay. And then that's with, uh, with Paul, me, uh, Nick, who had mm-hmm. played in um, Deep Sleep from mm-hmm. Baltimore. So he had moved out here. Um, and then uh, um, Matt Kearney, who plays in every band in San Diego. He plays, he was playing in Meth Breath. He, was, he plays in X Rain X now. Uh, dude is prolific. Shout out to the Matt that doesn't think I'm a racist. <laughs> <laughs> he might. We don't have his opinion, actually. We well, I'm that. not. So was... No, he probably he, he thinks you're a good dude. Yeah, dude. How could he not? That's what I think. Come on. Um, and, uh, and then, so, we're, we couldn't get our schedules to align. Nick leaves the band, and then we get Eagle Barber, who'd played in Stay Gold and Hardesty. And so he, he was playing drums and that's, that, that's kind of like the lineup that we, that's the lineup that we do the LP with. Um, and, uh, we, <laughs> right when we release the LP, we play two shows, break up. <laughs> Why? Uh, because we couldn't, we couldn't make anybody's schedules work. And then Paul moves real shortly after that. Um, like back home. Yeah. He moves back to, to Boston or New Jersey. I forget which one. Um, but, uh, but it was a bummer cause the record came out on react. We were really excited about it. Um, and it was right when Ev had started doing react. Um, and so we are hoping to really like do something for that record. And so when we only played two shows to support it, that was a, that was a disappointing thing. Yeah. Aram dodged that bullet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's like this is why I get out of this shit. Dump money into an LP, two shows, yeah, and you're out. And we we tried to we we took the band money that we had and just gave it to Ev, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what seemed right, um, you know. But I know he didn't make his money back on that record. Um, Buy that record. Yeah, it's up at Death Wish Inc. Go get it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, there's still copies. Yeah. Go get it. Um, and uh, I think there. I was listening to it the other day. And I was thinking like, man, so, you know, there's like nine songs on it. And I was thinking there's like three or four songs on here that are sick. Mm-hmm. There's some songs that I don't love, but that's the way it goes. Um, but I think that I think, it, I think I think it's a decent record, but um, it's still still out there. And I wish that we would have. Dude, we're trying more. to get Eve's money back. Yeah, it's a fucking <laughs> sick record. Get it at deathwishinc.com. Yeah, there you go. At the Deathwish distro store. There you go. There you go. Hit it up. Um, sick. Nine sick-ass songs. <laughs> sick songs. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we broke up. And then uh, that, that is the, the end of my musical bona fides. So what are you going to do next? Uh, nothing. You and Otley um, got to get some cracking, dude. Man, that would be fun. I know. That'd you should. Fun. Why wouldn't you? We'll do some singer-songwriter kind Ooh. of stuff. Yeah, I think it'd be cool. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I don't know, man. Like, you know, so... Uh, so I was watching, I went to see Candy play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Candy's sick. Candy's so sick. They played down here? No, it was up at Program. Okay. Um, and Candy I, played Program? Yeah. I thought they would be too big. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of people there, yeah. but it was, it, was, it was good. And I was like, dude, like to be a vocalist in a hardcore band that goes that hard and puts on like that, mm-hmm. like that is a young person's world, you know? Yeah, dude. I'm... I'm 39 and fat. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and in my opinion, like, so when you do retaliate, like you have like a meter and a time that you're singing in. And I think it, it bears more with like negative approach, like their gruff vocal stylings Mm -hmm. than it does with like, just like crazy balls out screaming. Sure. Um, Sure. Like, and I just don't like, and I was, and so I was watching candy and I was like, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. I like, um, so are they mid twenties? May. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and I've, I've seen bands of people that are my age and, and probably people listening to this age and your age. And like, you have to, you have to put on like as a live older hardcore front man. Um, and, uh, when you don't, it's sad. It's so sad to watch. You just gotta get your swagger up, dude. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like, uh, Aaron from death threat. Oh, that guy's not moving it, but he's got so much fucking confidence. Yeah. You're not taking an eye off him. Yeah. But he has, a, he has that similar approach. Well, number one, he has charisma to spare. Yeah. Right. He's a big personality and he's doing vocals that he can sustain. Yeah. You know, um, so you just gotta find your. your shit, I don't know if I like the way I sound doing that though. Like, there's a lot of room out there. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Um, I really want to do like uh, like old style country stuff. Oh, That'd are be you being serious? Yeah, but um, I don't. I don't play guitar. I know that's. I've always kind of wanted to do the singer songwriter thing as well, but yeah. I don't want to learn how to play guitar. Yeah. Don't you play guitar? Yeah, but not like chords. I've never even played. I've never even played a bar chord. <laughs> <laughs> you can just get someone else to play guitar. It'll look really funny on stage. Yeah, like one person playing guitar, sitting, and then you standing. And, no, next I'll, to sit. Oh, I'll sit. I'll sit on a stool, okay. and I'll just and I'll sing. Stand next to I would love to do something band. like that. Um, Those comps that just came out recently. It's like, what are they? Uh, Hillbillies from Hell. Uh-huh. You get any of those? No, nah, I haven't heard it. Dude, they, they, uh, they're pretty expensive now, but they came out in the last few years. Uh-huh. You can get the files online. Yeah, yeah. Those are some dark-ass country songs. That's you should cool. look it up. Hillbillies from I Hell. Would, I would love to do something like that. You know something that, that I really liked uh, was... Um, uh, I'm going to lose some cred here, I'm sure, but man, like I loved the, uh, the, the acoustic part of Let the Dominoes Fall, okay. the Rancid album. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I was moved by it. Like I thought it was great. Well, dude, I'm moved by like that 15 second Green Day song on like the short music for short people. <laughs> Said that I'd meet you at the Berkeley Marina, 3 a.m. where no one will be found. <laughs> I'll continue. All yeah, I going. got in mind is a Buddha and a wine. Smash a bottle in the parking lot. Fucking considering our <laughs> luck, we'll get busted by the cops. Instead of sex, we'll go to jail. Another lesson learned and failed. It's a good fucking song. That was good. Yeah, that was good. I don't even remember that song from that comp. Yeah. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to revisit that. Dude, it stands out so good. You yeah. should listen to it. His voice is perfect. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to do something like that. Like I think that would be that would be fun. And like um, you know, since. Uh, like since I did suspect, like a lot has changed in my life. And so like, I would love to do a project that mm-hmm. I could get into that. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. So hit me up if that's something you want to do. Like, yeah. man, like I would love to, um, well, Max does, he does a solo thing oh, called yeah. gentleman. And, uh, 
but it's hard because sometimes he'll he'll record with a band. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he has a band, but sometimes it's just him. Mm-hmm. And I tell him because I used to go to bars a lot, and some of the better bands they have that guy that's just sitting on that. Uh, it's like a square of wood, yeah. and they're kind of like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, that's the move. You want something a little more than just a, an asshole with a guitar, right? You know, like, oh, this party was sick until that fucking guy started playing the guitar, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. like, but you want a guy to just add a little sizzle so, like, right. this guy can lay down a rhythm. Bring just, something Yeah, to and then, like, you know, sometimes I just want to hear a little bit of tambourine. Yeah. Well, you know? so, funny enough, a friend of mine uh, who I was working with at the time, uh, right when I was going through my divorce, I was like, I need to do something with mm-hmm. this. Like, I need something. Um, and so he had started coming over, and we were just playing just like standards and covers mm-hmm. and stuff. And one time he brought over that little box with the wood. I, f- I forget what it is. What's it called? Um, but he brought it over and was like, here, try this so we can add some, mm-hmm. some, uh, some rhythm to what we're doing. And it was really fun. I really like doing that. Um, you know, it's definitely not like hardcore. That'd be sick. You can dip your toes back in that way. Mm-hmm. You can be the square wood guy. That's right. I'll be the square wood guy. Actually, you should practice a little bit and I'll hook you up with Max. You can be <laughs> his square wood guy. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, uh, um, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that, that's my, my discography. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Um, feel good about it. Yeah. I feel, I feel good about it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's, if there's other things about like promotion or, uh, shows that, that I wanted to say. Um, yeah, I, I think there is one more thing. And, and I think that this goes for anybody who's doing shows, but especially when you're in a, in a scene like San Diego that is smaller and it takes work to, to bring people here. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you're not doing a bar show. Like, and no one, no one is close to the show. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's a drive for anybody mm-hmm. unless you're living on UCSD campus. Um, but for, I, I think the main thing is, well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself again. So there's two things that I really tried to keep in mind as a promoter is number one is that it's my responsibility to help engender and build a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means that I'm going to book bands that are local that I may not like, I may not think they're great, but I'm going to put them on the show because that's what you do as a promoter is you, you're, you're building this thing up. Um, and so I think that that's important. Uh, the other thing is that like you got to promote your shows. You got to really go out and make sure that that those that the bands that are on tour have a good show when they come to your town. And so, if that means that you go and and invest fifty bucks in flyering and go do it, and you take an afternoon and you go and put flyers everywhere. Cool. If that means that you learn how to do it online, go and learn how to do it online. But make it an event. And that, make an honest effort. Yeah. To get the word out. Yeah. And 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 making an event that people are gonna see and they go, Man, I don't wanna miss that. Like that's gonna be a thing. I gotta go. Um Yeah, you remember that Christmas Addicts band? Yeah. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. So we had a house show booked at their spot on one of our tours and we showed up and there was mm-hmm. no one there like they were like, Oops. Like we totally forgot. Ooh. It was like Sick, dude. Cool, man. And we like literally, we played to one person. That's terrible. Yeah, we forgot. Like, that yeah, sucks. yeah. It's that like sucks. it's kind of it's pretty sorry, dude. Yeah. Well, I remember. Um, I mean, it was a Tuesday or some shit, but, but still, like, like we're three thousand miles away. <laughs> like, oh, right. Um, uh, I remember going up to to Ventura 
and you guys had put on a show for Find Him and Kill Him. Mm-hmm. And like, we'd never played Ventura, but you guys made it an event that that your friends and In Control fans would not want to miss. Right. And it was a fun show. Mm-hmm. It was big, and you guys treated us real well, and that was always cool. Yeah, my strategy back then is I've actually really respected people that do it differently now. Mm-hmm. So back then, I was so worried about people being burnt out by us at home mm-hmm. that like we'd probably just play every couple months mm-hmm. or I'd at least make sure it was at a different venue. So you mm-hmm. couldn't like, Oh, it's the same band playing the same place again, mm-hmm. but take offense. They turned my brain upside down on that because like they just, I feel like they just played every fucking weekend, right. every, like anywhere. Yeah. And it's like, they had zero concern about burning anyone out. Right. And it worked for them. It did work for so them. So there is no right or wrong way necessarily. Now I, I think you got to know your scene and know mm-hmm. your know your town and go with what works. Because um, I remember In Control didn't play uh, that Find Him and Kill Him show, but you guys put on the show. And like when I say you put on it, you put on for it. Like you guys made sure that In Control friends and fans mm-hmm. were, were at there. that show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you and Ryan both came to that show. I think we stayed at your house. Or we stayed at Ryan. Did you guys live together? Mm, no. Okay, we stayed at Ryan's house. Then. Um, and like that felt good because you made it an event that was important to be at. Hey, Mom, here's find him and kill him. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, like that was cool. And so th- that was something I learned. And then the other thing also is that I wanted bands to walk away from every show I did not thinking like, oh man, like Spencer's my friend. Mm-hmm. That didn't concern me so much. I wanted bands to walk away thinking we got treated well and the show was good. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those were like my guiding thoughts. Um, and I think that, that those did well for me. Um, you know, like we got a lot of really cool shows, a lot of cool stuff happened at the Che and will continue to happen at the Che and, um, as it goes on. I think that sometimes uh, I'm given too much ownership of what happened during those years when I was there. Um, I'm glad that people liked it, and I'm glad that bands of all stripes got a chance to come and do something cool. Um, you know, and uh, there was a lot of a lot of like mentoring that went on along the way, and um, you know, so like guys like Rob and Daniel and. Um, like I said, Ezra and Mike and uh, all these people who are helping make this thing work. Like it's not a singular activity, um, period. Okay. Do you have any last Shea words, David? <laughs> uh, yeah, just uh, we're, we're, we're alive. We're thriving right now. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the biggest, uh, you know, things that uh, – we need to really get going is getting the word out there that we're still around. You know, a lot of people, uh, if they don't know that we're around, they think maybe, you know, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with the J. I don't know. Well, you're actually in one of the most stable spots you've ever been in. Yeah, for sure. We have a, we have a really good, uh, you know, 10 year lease that we signed, uh, with, with, with the, uh, administration with the school. Mm-hmm. And um, the building got a lot of renovations it needed. It's going to continue to, but also us as a collective, we put in a ton of work really cleaning up the space. Um, it looks better now than it ever has. Like the building still needs help, like especially on the exterior and the school's going to actually put some in for that. 
but the interior looks better than it ever has. Uh, both through the renovations and the work we've been putting into it. Um, sound system's good. We got a new uh, digital mixer. We're like all super modern now. Um, kitchen is mostly back up and going. Um, but yeah, we want we want everyone to know that we're we're still around. We're still doing the same stuff. You know, we still stand for most of the same things, and uh, you know, it's it, it's there. And if bands want to play, they need to. You know, hit us up or they're they're well. How do you, how, how do they get in touch? Uh, they can get in touch with us through email. We have an email address for booking, which is booking at shakecafe.org. Uh, they can contact us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, whatever. I mean, we're going to get it uh, no matter what. We have people that check all of our social media and our email regularly, so we're not going to miss anything. Um, you know, and that's if they don't know someone who is booking at the Che already, because uh, we have certain people that get hit up more regularly, uh, mm-hmm. like directly. Sure. But um, but yeah, we have general ways to 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 get hit up, and yeah, everyone should just hit us up if they want to play a uh, an all ages show at probably the coolest venue I've ever been to in my life. You know, there's not many places where you can see a punk show that has that intimate of a feel and there's a forest outside and it's just chill. Like it's such a chill space. Um, and if you go on the right night, you can see people fucking, <laughs> <laughs> you might need a time machine for that. And you might have to go back to that Veruca show, but, uh, cause hopefully that's not happening too often. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, we're here. And, um, can bands yeah. request the, uh, the chain link mic if they want you know unfortunately the chain link mic got stolen like three months ago oh that's bullshit okay yeah. so we got to put that out there let's raise yeah. a little money who uh I didn't who the fuck was. took that <coughs> we that's that's we, fucking crazy yeah someone took someone actually stole some equipment from behind our stage as well like some people's personal uh amps and stuff that they had back there and guitars and stuff uh, some personal stuff got stolen of people's, and at the same time, they took the fucking chain link mic. I think that that chain mic broke the teeth <laughs> of people in Swindle and the explosion uh, and all sorts of people. <laughs> that was my favorite thing. I know everyone's super sad. That's uh, sure. that's fucked up. You know, yeah. guys, if if anyone can find out who took that, you know, have it. They hey, how about this? Let's track that fucking thing down. That's really <laughs> fucked up. That's like a, a a big piece of of like nostalgia and memorabilia for a lot of us. So yeah. so find out who took it, and they can come to me anonymously. Bring it back. Man. One uh, hundred eighty five miles south at gmail dot com or any of my social media, and I will make a pact with you today that if you return that, I will not out you. <laughs> um, and that's it. Let's get that thing back to the shade where it belongs. That's fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. But. Make it right, stupid. Make it right, you know. And if you know who took that, it, come on, that's fucking bullshit. That that's sucks. serious bullshit. You didn't know that? No, that's the first I heard of it. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's fucking heartbreaking. Okay, so they're gonna get in touch. Booking at shakecafe.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Send love letters. They can make uh, kitchen requests. Uh, they should send. Oh, they can make kitchen requests. I suppose. Uh, you know. Uh, Within certain parameters, of course. You know, making falafel is really cheap I, and delicious. You know, deep frying would be difficult right now. I just do it in a pan. Okay, yeah. We could do falafel in a pan for sure. Yeah. Respect. Mm-hmm. Although the, uh, I don't know, is, 
Is there a good uh, vegan yogurt sauce? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's good vegan yogurt we could use, yeah. Tahini by itself is good. Yeah, tahini mm. is good by Go itself. Go tahini instead of tzatziki. How about yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Turn it on its head. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Spence? Um, no. I think, uh, I think uh, that's it for me. I feel good. I feel well represented. Oh, yeah. Do you guys both feel well represented? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel well represented. There, there's just so much to talk about. I'm sure I left somebody out who. Oh, let me give my perspective on the uh, on the built to last fight story. I'm just glad we got out of the pod without talking about yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> it's been covered many times. Um, no, so I feel good. Great, David. Sorry, sorry if I left anybody out. Feel good too. Yep. Thanks, guys.